0: Hello, my beauties. Welcome back to Podcast Land. My guest today is Dr. Jack Lewis, and we are talking about the science underpinning the seven deadly sins. Dr. Lewis is a neuroscientist, which means he understands how the brain works. And his most recent book looks at why we do the things we know we shouldn't. Seven deadly sins have been defined for hundreds of years, and yet we all still fall prey to them. So expect to learn the underpinnings of our willpower, neuroscience's explanations for why we tend towards sinning, whether we have control over what makes us sexually aroused, a justification for punching someone in the face, and much more. do need to give a tiny warning that there is a little bit of discussion with regards to paedophilia in this podcast and if that is something that makes you uncomfortable go and check out one of our other episodes. I also need to give you a warning that this episode is two hours long. I was just having far too much fun with Dr. Lewis you know and we got a bit of a bromance thing going on and time ran away from me so yeah strap yourself in. In other news, if you listen very carefully, just listen. Can you hear what that is? That is the sound of the Ultimate Life Hacks list careering its way towards us like an articulated lorry about to sideswipe you into a world where your entire life has been upgraded. That's right. This Monday, the Ultimate Life Hacks list launches and it will be free at least next week. So don't forget on Monday the 15th of June, check out the pre-roll to the podcast or head to my socials at chriswillx to find out how you can get your copy of the Ultimate Life Hacks list. In other news, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by fitbook.co.uk. The world is about to reopen, and if you are a fit pro, if you are a PT, a masseuse, or any other kind of fitness professional, fitbook.co.uk is the perfect way to build your client base back up. It is inevitable that some of your clients will have lapsed during lockdown, and this is the best way to kickstart it. If you are a customer who is looking for someone, you're looking for a new personal trainer, maybe you gained a little bit of weight... During lockdown, like everybody, Uh, maybe looking for a masseuse to try and work out all of those kinks from working at your kitchen table for the last two and a half months, head to fitbook.co.uk. It's like a trusted trader, but for fitness professionals. So it is absolutely fantastic. If you're a customer, it is free to use at fitbook.co.uk. And if you are a fitness professional, simply head to fitbook.co.uk and enter the code MODERNWISDOM for 50% off your membership. Fitbook.co.uk, enter the code MODERNWISDOM for 50% off your membership as a fit pro. Find yourself some new clients and kickstart your client base ready for the reopening into the real world. But for now, it's time to learn about the science of sin with the wise and wonderful Dr. Jack Lewis. We're talking about sin today. All the all the sins. How are you? Are you sinful today? Are you feeling sinful?
1: Nah, no, I've been I've been pretty virtuous, to be honest. I mean, lockdown sort of uh, stops people going out and doing things that might get them in trouble. So I've been boringly virtuous.
0: How <laughs> sinful can you be during a pandemic? You know.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean. The, oh, it, if, you, if you take the, the drop-in A&E um, visits, uh, it's just you, 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 you can't even hurt yourself if you stay indoors.
0: <laughs> you put those little foam cups on all the sharp edges in your house. Exactly. And you make sure that you take the steps carefully. That's it.
1: And particularly during the period where the DIY shops were closed, it's like, I mean, how's anyone going to chop their finger off? in a bank holiday if they can't go and buy a scalpel
0: limes Not a scalpel, putting, li- sand, sand putting limes for mojitos that's how <laughs> that's how you do it um so talking about sin yeah. the science of sin your new book science of yeah. sin why we do the things we know we shouldn't so mm-hmm. why why do we do the things that we know that we shouldn't
1: because we're human
0: Okay. Too short I'm, an answer? No, I mean it's just it's just a it's a longer book than that. <laughs> it's it's just uh, loads of loads of pages in this.
1: No, it's um it's, you know what I'm usually very wordy, so I've I've my new year's resolution is to be more concise. That was perhaps too concise. No, so sh- the thing is, humans are driven by instincts, um, amongst other things, and those instincts. If you take the ones that are covered by the seven deadly sins, the important thing to remember is if you were to abolish any of those seven things, it it would be curtains for humanity. We need a modicum of all of the seven deadly sins um, in in order to function properly as individuals, as communities. It's just when any of those seven categories of behavior go to excess, that they are uh, at its core antisocial. Now, I'm I'm not a religious person. Um, I spent a lot of time sort of singing hymns at school because both my primary and secondary school were Church of England. But I I didn't really believe a word of it. I just thought, you know, I I was always more inclined to sort of the scientific approach. Let's look at the evidence. If there's evidence to support it, you know, more evidence to support it than to refute a hypothesis, then, you, you know, you believe accordingly. But with, I don't know, there was so much stuff in the Bible that was sort of clearly outdated. That I thought, how can people still buy into this? Like, I realize it gives people a lot of um, hope and it gives them a sense of community, but but the the concept of believing like a literal interpretation of the Bible in a post enlightenment time, it just seemed bonkers. But i I've, I've, the more I looked into it, having sort of got my PhD in neuroscience and scanned a lot of brains and sort of got much clearer on what we do and don't know, in terms of human knowledge, modern wisdom, um, I realized that actually there's an awful lot of stuff in those ancient books of religion, Bible and, and others, um, which you shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, just because you don't, which, for me personally, just because I don't believe in the supernatural doesn't mean that there's not something to be learned if you read between the lines. Mm. Of, and that, And that's what I was sort of correcting the error of my ways.
0: It's so interesting. I got this quote from Donald Kingsbury, which hits the nail on the head there, I think. Tradition is a set of solutions for which we have forgotten the problems. Throw away the solution and you get the problem back. Sometimes the problem has mutated or disappeared. Often it is still there as strong as it ever was.
1: Mm. And and that reminds me of a friend of mine. uh, She's an amazing woman. She's like an engineer and a designer, and she sort of designs healing spaces, not in a hippie way, I'm talking about psychiatric institutions, build the buildings and the parkland, the open air, so that it fosters healing rather than a lot of, you know, let's say bedlam hundreds of years ago. It was the opposite of a place that promoted healing. And after so she's doing a Ph.D. in Sweden, four and a half years into a five year Ph.D., she realized that all of the answers had been uh, reached by the ancient Greeks. So if only she'd been a classicist and read the right ancient Greek books, all of her, what she thought was modern discoveries using the latest cutting-edge research techniques, it was already there. It's just, who's interested in history? We're all interested in the future and what technology can do. It's
0: bonkers. That is is crazy. It is The the Lindy effect, the fact that we always presume that newer is better – and um especially given the fact that so much of our time is spent on like Instagram stories or Facebook mm. stories or whatever that is content which has been produced within the last 24 hours it's the yeah. least lindy platform like by design um but yeah so but
1: also but also the fact that when you're consuming information so rapidly that you're not re- you're so eager to get onto the next thing because it's more about quantity than quality w- when you consume social media, um, you're not even focusing on what you're saying. Like You get to the end of the paragraph, and you're like, what, another 10 paragraphs? Nah, screw it. I've got enough. I'm going to move on to the next thing. <laughs> but it means, it means everyone's knowledge is superficial and rapid, and people don't bother to go deeper and deeper to get a, thorough, a more thorough understanding. Um, but anyway, we can't fix the whole world.
0: No, we, but we can explain to people about seven deadly sins today so do yeah. what wa- do we want to do them is there some part of us that wants to do these these capital vices which is the other term that you have you've got the seven deadly sins or capital vices as you call yeah. them Like, why aren't we the masters of our own behavior hmm
1: why aren't we the masters of our own behavior it's partly because finding the right path in life is is a balance like there's always pros and cons there's always pluses and minuses there's always benefits and risks and each individual's capacity to pick a path which finds that goldilocks zone that sweet spot where you're doing everything in moderation and you're not letting anything go to the extreme it it, is different like everyone's capacity to do that is Well, decision-making in general is driven by, you don't remember the last hundred times you made a similar decision, but on a sort of subconscious basis, there's a trace of whether it worked out well or badly when you went for the risky option that that promised a high return compared to the low-risk option that promised a low return. And so quite often finding that balance between sort of giving – that urge for immediate gratification, um, a little bit of airtime, but not too much, and, and on average, always trying to go for what's best in the long run. You, you can't do both. Yeah. Like quite often. So let's say the, the best example I think is, is gluttony, right? Because gluttony, uh, gluttony is overeating, overdrinking. Greed is just wanting more of anything, no matter how much you've got already. And that gluttony thing was an absolute design feature. Back in you know, hundred of hundreds of thousands of years of of human history, if when food was available, you stuffed your face and built up fatty deposits, it meant that when the inevitable lean times came where food was unavailable for weeks and weeks and months and months, you know, this scrabble for existence was tough. We're, we're very pampered in this day and age. Under conditions of prevailing food scarcity, you wanna get fat in the, at harvest time so that you can survive through the winter, right? And so it, it, it's actually a logical thing to do, to, to, to shove everything in your face. And instinctively, we love like fast-release carbs, sugary, bready, cakey stuff. We love fatty stuff, of course we do. But we're not designed to eat every day. Our metabolism can't cope with eating that stuff every day. And then so you've got the forces of advertising saying, hey, don't buy all that expensive kind of nutritious food. It's much more affordable. Let's appeal to the cost effectiveness to get a family deal, you know, get get a bucket of fried chicken, get, you know, get in the habit, getting trained in the habit of eating takeaways or or, or sort of microwave meals every single day without fail. Now a little bit of that stuff is fine, but doing it every day screws you up. So the instinct to overeat used to save lives in that people could live for long enough to reach sexual maturity, to have sex with someone, pass their genes on to the next generation. Like by hook or by crook, every single one of your listeners, you and me, we have an unbroken chain of ancestors who managed to live for long enough to reach sexual (laughs) maturity and shag and have a baby it's, it's it's astonishing without that propensity to overeat that wouldn't have happened yeah so so those humans who didn't have that propensity to overeat they didn't let you know their ancestral line petered out, they were out so competing. the point is yeah. when you fast forward to 2020 the, the environment is now defined by food overabundance in the vast majority of places in the world in the developed world at least you know the shops um Have even even in strange times of social isolation, the the shops do run out, but there is plenty of food available. You know, so no one's there's very few people starving to death in the UK right now, right? Mm. And and so that means that that whole gluttony urge is now um, a design flaw. We're, We're battling against it in order to sort of stay in relatively good shape.
0: Got you. Okay, so how do you define the deadly sins?
1: They are, well, how do I define these things? They are perfectly natural human urges, which in extreme cause absolute havoc in one's social relations. It makes you vastly unpopular with other people. If you take more than your fair share, greed, if you uh, don't, you know, pull your weight, in a a collective endeavor that, you know, teamwork kind of thing, we can get so much more done as a team than we can individually. But if one person's shirking their duties, then they become very unpopular. Uh, You know, lust causes all sorts of havoc in that people end up having relationships outside of the person that they might have um, dedicated, you know, their their life to. Um, And then once people feel betrayed, it's very hard for them to trust again. Um, you go through every single one in moderation. We need a bit of lust, otherwise you don't pass on your on your genes. We need a bit of greed, so that when um, if you if you've accumulated a bit of an excess, then when you hit tough times, you can endure them more easily. Every single one of those things. It's like in moderation, it helps us, um, but in 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 excess. It it makes people push us away. It makes people think, you know, I don't want to hang out with that person anymore Mm. because they're so aggressive. You know, at the drop of a hat, they're kicking off and I just don't want to be around it anymore. And and what the point I just want to quickly get to is social isolation is the literally deadly, these seven deadly sins, because if you're socially isolated, you die earlier. And whilst you're alive, you have a higher in in, higher incidence of things like depression, anxiety disorder, personality, uh, personality disorders. So so you die of cancers and cardiovascular disease to, to a, uh, much earlier if you're lonely.
0: It's you, an all-cause have- all mortality risk, isn't it, loneliness? Yes.
1: And, and that, this has been known since 1988, right? Uh, something was, you know, we, we, we mentioned this earlier, that, that a lot, we're sort of, if we'd only look more keenly at what was already written down, we wouldn't have to, I wouldn't have to look at all of the fmri brain imaging data to figure out what makes people do these things you know it, it, i could just like I'm, I'm glad that i went through that process because for me personally i'm benefiting hugely from having a clearer understanding of the role that the seven deadly sins play in my old, own life as an atheist and i pay much more attention to them now having written that book and by making sure those seven behaviors don't go to extreme I'm not falling out with my friends and family and co-workers, you know, to the same degree as if I was oblivious to it all and just carried on being selfishly narcissistic and kept taking treble extra servings and leaving other people with not enough to eat, you know, (laughs) like I am quite a greedy, gluttonous person and it's made me think differently about it.
0: It's so interesting when you see this, the ancient wisdom then get reshown in modern science, man. Like it, it, it's so funny it just reminds us how highly we hold um, ourselves in regard and modern science and modern wisdom. You know, we mm. hold that. Obviously, the podcast fantastic, but, the, you know, the actual time <laughs> itself. Uh, yeah. uh, and then you realise, you're totally correct. Like, just read a bit of Seneca. Like, Seneca and Epictetus had that sorted out, mate, or whatever it might be. So uh, what I find really interesting about the seven deadly sins and the way that you put it together was that you said it's common categories of human behaviour that cause people to fall out and what that suggests is that if you were like an island if it was just chris or jack and you went through your some of these sins that it wouldn't cause as much of a problem but when there's other people around that increased friction the work between you and those around you that it, it kind of magnifies the problem is that yeah yeah the yeah yeah I'm,
1: to I'm totally with you i think that's a very reasonable thing to say the one thing the one caveat is no man is an island and i think what we don't realize is the degree to which friends aren't just nice to have they are absolutely essential to our well-being and that's not about having 500 you know friends on social media you, you can have one or two really reliable mates that you can talk things over with like the human brain generates lots of hypotheses lots of potential explanations for why things are happening Some of those notions absolutely start graving bonkers. And you need your mates and your family members or the people around you to reflect back on whether the parts of what you're saying that add up and make sense in their objective view and the parts of what you're saying that are just pie in the sky, you know, bonkers. And that's what people who are socially isolated don't have that. And they end up doing their head in with getting hung up on some of those notions that go round and round in their head. Confirmation bias. They've got no one to sort of push back and, and, and say, no, 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 I I disagree with that. But that's the most useful thing someone can do it, when, when they honestly say to you, I disagree completely for the following reasons, because it makes you aware of a different perspective that we simply, it's very hard to have multiple perspectives when you're looking at the same pair of eyes or listening through the same pair of ears each day. So those other people in your life help you to go through all of your notions and beliefs and Sort of what, hopefully, so long as you're not in an echo chamber of people who we'll think the same thing, yeah. um, give, give you a bit more balance. And and it's the same thing with this modern wisdom, ancient wisdom. There's a lot of nonsense written in the ancient wisdom. The nice thing about looking at it from the context of modern science is it helps you to separate the wheat from the chaff. You know, it helps you focus in on those pearls of wisdom that were bang on the money. Whereas like Plato thought that the brain was just sort of, you know, they thought that all, the spirit was in the heart and the brain was just a radiator for losing heat. <laughs> you know, so they might, they might have been good at philosophy, but they got their anatomy, anatomy completely upside yeah, down.
0: They needed to do a little bit of work on that, didn't they?
1: So um, what I'm saying is like, we can't just rely on ancient wisdom, but, but looking at it through the lens of modern science, I think you can start... You know, working out what bits to focus on and and really put your weight behind uh, and what bits just to to, let go, ignore it. Like I worry about people who worry about the fate of their life, sorry, fate of their soul in the afterlife, because there's a lot of people who, you know, like the Catholic guilt thing, um, people beat themselves up. People are hard on themselves because... The expectations of certain people in, so- in the society that, that they're raised in hold them to such like high standards, impossibly high standards. Like the concept of being able to steer clear of the seven deadly sins your whole life is 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 poppycock because they, they are driven by fundamental, basic human instincts. Like you know, they're related to the very fundamental instincts that are involved in the drive su- for survival. So. Some people are going to do well at being disciplined. Some people are going to be bad at being disciplined. But I would argue those people who are overly disciplined are missing out on life. They're they're, they're postponing everything for the afterlife, which may or may not exist. So why not just make a heaven of life on Earth?
0: It's a very good argument, man. I don't know. I mean, increasingly, as I get exposed to books like yours uh, and more evolutionary psychology, and as I start to wrap my head around how we operate and why we are the way we are um the concept of who but what is natural to us seems to Mm. become more and more both clear and muddy at the same time Mm. does that make sense like you you don't when you start to strip away ego and predisposition and your um the way that you've dealt with your trauma and your genetic heritage and all this sort of stuff when you start to strip that away you're like well hang on how much of this do i do before i'm no longer me but how much of that do i need to get rid of to be more of me and Mm. again seneca's got this concept which is called the virtuous mean and it's uh not a vice of excess nor a vice of uh uh, too little yeah whatever under like not enough denial or something that middle section that middle bit right that's what we're we're kind of touching on today so let's let's get into them pride first thing pride yeah isn't pride a good thing I want to have pride I've done some well shouldn't have you should f- be
1: proud of yourself yes yeah, so you should be proud of podcast. yourself so wh-
0: why is it why is it why is pride a sin
1: it's confusing isn't it um, you should take more pride in your work how many times were we told that at school um, so, so so the positive side of pride is it's it's a natural human emotion kicks in during childhood and it rewards uh, an infant feels proud of themselves when they do what mommy or daddy tell them to do and then when they get positive feedback and they get smiles and claps and, you know, like body language and vocalizations that make the kid realize that they've done good, they beam with pride because it's reinforcing. When, when, when the world tells you that what you've done is good um, in moderation, it's good because it makes you more likely to repeat that positive behavior. But the trouble with pride is when you take it to excess, you end up with essentially narcissism. The the, the sin of pride, what what the ancient religious thinkers thought was negative, bad about people who are overly prideful, is almost indistinguishable from what science and medicine these days thinks of as narcissism. So it's things like feeling like you don't need other people. You're completely self-efficacious. It's all about me, 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 I don't need anyone else. Uh, Being very vain, Um, thinking that you're better than other people are pretty much everything, even in the sort of face of stark evidence of the contrary, You just, you just can't, you can't believe that you're not just brilliant at everything. Um, so the average narcissistic person is the kind of person that's really gonna rub other people up the wrong way. Like they're always drawing attention to themselves. Um, and a lot of narcissism seems to be to do with uh, poor self-esteem. And, and that can either come from neglectful parenting or or overly attentive helicopter parenting, both of which can lead to what, what psychologists describe as an undifferentiated sense of self. Like, so their sense of self doesn't develop properly early on in life, which means they don't really know where, if you take the helicopter parenting example, the kid doesn't know where they end and their parents begin, there's no dividing line. They just, because they have their parents' views forced on them the whole time, They don't know what they think. They just mimic parrot fashion, what the parent would say in all situations and carry on doing that through life. So those kind of narcissists need to work on that to sort of basically stand on their own two feet, ego wise, if if you like. Um, And and although they seem, narcissists seem like they're so full of themselves, they're constantly looking for uh, reassurance, positive feedback from the rest of the world, which is why they're such a nightmare to be around. Like anyone who does something good oh, i 'll I'll take i 'll take responsibility for that i 'll get all the praise, even though it wasn 't my idea, but I convinced myself it was my idea, so now all the praise should be showered in my direction and then if you don 't give them that praise, they get really aggressive, they get really wound up and they're they 're just a social nightmare so narcissistic people almost always end up alone, even those in relationships they choose relationships which are basically yes men yes women to, to constantly give that positive reinforcement and that's not really a relationship relationships involve g- give and take so they're still an island even when they're in relationships so narcissism is 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 the queen of all the deadly sins as far as St Gregory the Great was concerned and and he's the guy who basically invented the concept of the seven deadly sins he took some there were so many sins before his time in the 6th century um, that, that it was hard to keep track of all the things you shouldn't do, but he sort of narrowed it down to, look, these are the seven most important things to keep your eye on. You know, there are lots of other things that are going to prevent you from going to heaven in his view of the world. Um, but I think he was bang on the money to, to, to sort of refine the list down to a more easily manageable seven, because then we've got a fighting chance of remembering them. Like our, our capacity to hold information in mind is limited to around about seven items. So expecting someone, particularly, you know, hundreds of years ago, thousand years ago, to, rec- to bear in mind when they're considering, should I, shouldn't I do this thing, 10 different like commandments
0: it can't even read or write but they've got 45 yeah. different commandments they've got to try and remember
1: but, but but like you say with the 10 by the time yeah. you get to the eighth commandment you've forgotten what the first and the second <laughs> one was. Yeah. so so christianity would just had expectations that go beyond the yeah. limits of the brain's capability so i think i think st gregory smashed it by by bringing it down to 7
0: why did you say queen What's that mean?
1: Probably because he's a massive sexist. Um, so, right. so, so I, I think the idea was, and, and I'm, I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm presuming mm-hmm. that it was along the lines. of, he could have said the king, but because qu- queens, you know, from the perspective of, of a religious man who had, you know, devout, he's married to God, he doesn't do women. Mm-hmm. Women are the temptresses who, who make men think about lust. You know, lust is one Didn't of the. He seven-
0: say, I, I thought you said that pride was the queen.
1: Pride, so, so the idea is that once pride has seduced you, you will be much more um, likely to fall foul of the all of the deadly sins. Oh,
0: including that's l- the...
1: greed, greed, including
0: gluttony. It's the pride's the buy-in. It's the on-ramp. It's the
1: it's the, it's, it's the gateway. Yes. the gateway vice that leads to all the others. So those. I mean, whether or not he was right in that regard, I don't know. Mm. But. The most interesting finding from the neuroscience stuff was actually to do with scanning the brains of people who, who are high in narcissism uh, in an FMRI in an MRI scanner, and then compare their brain responses to social rejection to those who are low on the narcissism scale. And a part of the brain that lit up um, much more strongly was a brain area involved in, in creating our perception of pain, whether it's physical pain or psychological anguish, this brain area uh, which is called the DACC. It's a bit of a mouthful, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. Love it. Um, so it's like, it's it's where the two halves of the brain meet in the middle, uh, just above and to the front of the band of um, neurons that connect the left and right side of the brain. This big bundle called the corpus callosum. Um, it's, ju- it's just a patch of brain tissue that's a little bit above and in front of that particular uh, structure. DACC. And um, yeah, and, and that that brain. So basically, what, what does that mean? What that means is, when a narcissistic person is socially rejected, they feel the pain of that social rejection more acutely. And so, what I took from that is perhaps that explains why they're such dreadful people in a social in in a social circumstance. They're, they're incredibly touchy. They're very easily offended. You know, so any amount of offense that someone in 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 the group, in their neighbourhood, in their family, might cause them, you know. One unit of, of intended um, offense causes 10 units of, of, of pain, which presumably they will then ruminate about and plot their revenge, you know ag- aggression, um, envy and wrath two of the deadly sins, I'm sure we'll chat about later they, they, they often inspire thoughts of plotting for revenge, you know, getting your retribution mm-hmm. for what normally boils down to, to, to hurt pride.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, everyone that's listening knows or has a friend. There's someone in the circle. They might not be in it anymore mm. who makes everything about them. It's Jay from The In Between You know, <laughs> it's like he's just the epitome of yeah. the guy that's, yeah, 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 but I did this. Yeah, 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 but I did that. Carol yeah, Dweck's yeah. fixed mindset human. What, well, you know, pick the avatar that you want to talk about this. But, um, yeah, yeah I, 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 I feel for these people, man, like I, people that have check. that excess pride and a super narcissist. like it makes me feel bad because I can watch their programming at play. And that's not to say I'm fucking immune. Like, I watch my own programming at play as well, and I feel bad for myself, which is like a, a whole second circle of hell that you can descend into. But you watch these people do it, and I'm like, fuck, man, like I, you're, you're a cool girl or guy. You don't need to do all this. You don't have to have the show. I... I'm perfectly happy being out at dinner with you or going to the gym with you or doing a whatever without this whole game, Mm. you know?
1: You you just preempted absolutely beautifully the conclusion of the entire book, which is that that's the best way to deal with these people. Bit of compassion, you know, talking about the ancient wisdom, Buddha's been banging on about that forever, you know? Two and a half thousand years, Buddha's teachings that suffering is inevitable, and, and that the best way you can deal with people in the world or, or creatures or anything in the world is to be compassionate, you know, to think of to, to be more mindful of other people's suffering. So it doesn't matter which of the seven deadly sins you're talking about. I found evidence for that brain area involved in generating psychological anguish inner a turmoil. Mm. It, it's 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 on a hair trigger. In four out of the seven deadly sins, and probably in the other three too. You Just know, the, the, relevant, it, yeah. the, the relevant the <laughs> relevant neuroscience studies haven't yet been done. Like any neuroscientist who wrote wrote a sort of a um, a request for funding for research, he said, "Yeah, I'm going to study the seven deadly sins," they'd be laughed out of the room, right? I, I got lucky that there was enough neuroscience to work with to try and estimate what these brain areas do. But but you, this bang on the money. I thought I got I got to the end of writing the book, and I thought, "Well, what can people do with this knowledge?" Like like is it is How can it guide them on how to live a better life? And uh, I've got a nice little anecdote about how I I actually failed to put it into practice myself, this idea of the best way to deal with people who are falling foul of letting the seven deadly sin type behaviors go to the extreme and causing social chaos everywhere they go. Best way to deal with them is to be more mindful, just to think about how much extra inner turmoil they're dealing with than the average punter. And I, when I finished writing the book, um, I went back to the place where I, I was inspired to write the book, which is Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park. Um, you know, for, for us Brits, it's, it's, and in fact, in the world, it's the home of freedom of speech. And, and it's been that way since 1186. Um, and, and it was sort of put into law in the 19th century, because uh, back in the day when people were going to be hung from the neck for some kind of crime, they'd get a chance to say a few words they're going to be dead in a few minutes but you know doesn't really matter what they say and i love that in britain we had this tradition of letting people who were doomed say their piece. it seems like a very reasonable thing to do anyway so i used to go down there a lot because i'm born and bred london i love roller skating one of the best places to roller skate in the whole of london is up and down by the serpentine and when i got tired all the way through my teens and 20s I'd, i'd just go around to speaker's corner and have a little listen to all these usually men up on their ladders, preaching away about whatever they wanted. It was invariably about religion. I remember thinking it's such a shame that all these people like that, like I love that they are vehemently preaching their beliefs and a lot of them errant beliefs in my view, but they had a place where they could speak their beliefs and there's something very liberating about having the freedom to express yourself, even if you're completely wrong. Um, and I thought, it's just a shame that science doesn't get a look in. And it was there where, I, where I'd sort of listened to them. I'd go, well, 10% of what you said was bang on the money, and I can learn from that. But 90% was supernatural poppycock. You know, it was mostly people arguing over whose religion is best. There's quite a lot of people from one faith having arguments with people from other faiths, you know, stress testing and going around and around in circles. But anyway, I went back there, and I got up on my own soapbox, and I preached from my own book. And I sort of, I, I said, I thought people would be interested, you know, passers by, oh, who wants to hear about the scientific perspective on the seven deadly sins? And and it's up on YouTube. If you go to psyofsin.com, I've I made these little videos. I've got a friend to film it. And there's little six minute snippets of the hour to, hour long talk I gave. Now about 20 minutes from the end, it was this is like 11.30 on a Sunday. This bloke just came, sort of wandered over like a bottle of cider in his hand, absolutely hammered homeless guy, just shouting abuse at me non-stop for 20 minutes. And I didn't know how to deal with him. Like I, I blanked him for five minutes. That didn't work. I, I brought him into the conversation a little bit, trying to sort of use him to make some points. That didn't work. He was just drunk and belligerent. Anyway, I'm, I'm not proud. I edited it out. So there's no evidence of it. But I, I gave him a piece of my mind. I was rude to him. I got angry. I let him get to me. And in front of a crowd of about 50 people, I said a few quite unkind things, which didn't help matters, but nothing else had worked. Mm. Fast forward four months, I went back to the same spot. I gave a talk again because I thought you can't just do it once. <laughs> uh, and I told the story of how I had failed to be compassionate with that man. And that I was slightly embarrassed that I didn't put my own, you know, do, I basically did do as I say, not as I do. And I thought, you know, if I get the chance, I'd, lo- I'd love to make amends. You will not believe it. Ten minutes from the end of that talk, I saw him coming over from the background. I saw him wandering towards. I leapt off my soapbox. I ran over to him. And I was like, so great to see you again. I'm really sorry for what I said last night. I threw my arms around him and gave him a hug. Now, this guy is, you know, a lot of homeless people are mentally ill. There's a very high proportion. It, like, I, I did it on instinct because it felt like the right thing to do. Obviously, un- unplanned. And at that moment of embracing him, I thought, is he, is he going to stab me? Like, you know, I could end up getting hurt here. What an idiot. On the contrary, he melted. He, he was tense. And then when he, like, I held him for about five, ten seconds, and I felt him relax into my arms, which is weird, right? And he was good as gold. For, for the whole rest of the talk, he did not disturb once. Whereas before, he'd been going, you're not an effing urologist. You're a loony. You know, he was good as gold. And then at the end, he came up to me. He's like, I actually listened to you this time. And I come down here to disturb these people. Because I think these religious zealots are nuts. And they shouldn't be telling people to follow God. I think everyone should make their own decisions in life. And that's why i come and be disruptive. He's like, now that I've listened to you, I agree with every word you said. Man, what Which, a was, cool. nice. What a Which cool, was nice.
0: What a cool story. So... Having been on the front door of more nightclubs than I can remember, I know the pain of dealing with someone who's drunk. And when when people have got alcohol in the man, there's just no set. You're not talking to them. You're talking to the blood alcohol point one zero or whatever it is. That's what you're talking to, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely. What I really enjoy doing, and I'm enjoying doing it increasingly now, is breaking the fourth wall of a conversation in that sort of a manner. So if someone's doing something, if someone is being driven by their programming or they have a response to something, I'll ask them about the response, not about what they said, but like, hang on a second, man, like, why why did you say that? Or why, why were you so sort of um, self-effacing there? Like, why did you have to kind of caveat what you were going to say and say that, oh, well, I know that it's just shit, but it's this thing. It's like, why didn't you just say it? Oh, well... Uh, huh, huh. and you can see people, the the cognitive dissonance starts to fire and you're like, the programming just it doesn't want to accept the fact I should have just said the words. But increasingly, I think, you know, doing it with compassion, not doing it to show off, doing it to say, look, like you don't need to be over or under you that kind of Mm. the virtuous mean in the middle is exactly where you can be and i think calling people out on that it's as you said at the beginning you want to be friends with people that want the best for you
1: not people that
0: that tell you what you want to hear not people that decide to be too mean and and kind of um use you as a a, a punching bag for their own kind of emotional challenges um, yeah. But man, that's a, that's a really really cool story. I'm super glad as well that you managed to get some closure and 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 kind of finish that loop off because yeah. I, I imagine it must have felt very very satisfying. And also, obviously, that's very
1: it... e- empathic of you because I, it, it it ate away at me. I, I pride myself on not being a hypocrite. I try to not be a hypocrite and not know? being
0: a dick. I'm gonna guess as well.
1: Yeah, well, I try. Yeah. Um, but that that kind of thing it it does it. You know, there, there are other things that, like I mentioned, one in the book about roth where this um this guy I, I got i was doing some filming in brighton and i got to the end of the line and i was i was actually writing <laughs> science of sin uh you know i was researching and writing and i had my papers over it took ages to tidy everything up and the the train conductor like went through the car and said you gotta get off and i was like yeah yeah and i was hurrying to get my stuff but I, you know I, I was basically dithering and he and he locked me in the carriage. And then I went up to the next carriage. That one was locked too. He had me running halfway up the length of the train before I could actually get off. And I'm like, mate, what are you doing? You saw me there. I went absolutely mental at him. So, you know, the homeless guy, that guy, you know, literally enraged. Like my blood alcohol level was super high and I felt like my pride was wounded. But... I spent weeks, like I just, it kept popping into my head, examining it. Why did you react like that? Why did you do that? And, and I think that's one thing that this sort of new modern wisdom-inspired pursuit of like let, let's use all this psychology research and this better understanding of why we do the things we do to try and make ourselves better. I think I think one of the main things that offers us is the opportunity to not be so hard on ourselves. And what I liked about your anecdote is it sounded like you give reflections to people that help them uh catch when they're going into set piece behaviors where they're kind of either beating themselves up too much about something that they did or writing off their potential to potentially be better because it's easier if you don't try you can't fail you know and i think a lot of people who who are a little bit stuck in their ways from an objective perspective it's like they're worried about trying to be different because if they try something new and it doesn't work, then that could end up giving their self-esteem bro, a bit of a kicking.
0: Bro, I love I love trying to bring people up like that. There's some people that, are, as far as I'm concerned, are just lost causes, and that's more from a time efficiency perspective. There's certain people I know that have excess pride, and I'm just, dude, like you're. You might you might figure it out. You might not figure it out. Maybe you stumble down the right YouTube rabbit hole or start reading the right books, or maybe you don't. But it's this isn't yeah. my fight. I'm I'm leaving you to it. Um, but
1: also you're not quite, with respect, you're not qualified to do I'm not qualified oh, to sure. do that. The well, only people who can really help those people are ones who can go, you know, train professionals, all of this psychologists, therapists. Let's go back through and work out where all this came from. Because it's like, I guess it, I'd imagine, my mum's a, a therapist, so I've got some insight into what the process involves. Not that I've ever gone through it myself, which is one of my long-lasting hypocrisies because I know I should do it. But I still haven't yet got around to it. Um, yeah, it, it's 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 working out what life experiences led you to certain set piece behaviours that aren't good for you or other people because it's it's not a sort of zero sum game. Well being and happiness like we can all together lift ourselves. It's not like one person's happiness detracts from your own. Envy wise, if someone else seems really happy, it can emphasise your own. Relative lack of happiness. So, so quite often people don't want to be around perpetually cheerful people for that reason. <laughs> um, but ultimately you need professionals to help you understand why you just keep doing things that rub people up the wrong way. Um, neuroscientists can't really help you. Uh, well intentioned podcasters, but you know, like if you did the course, I'm sure you'd be brilliant because you have, I would argue on the basis of what you've sh- shown so far in the last 40 minutes. You've got it, man. Like you, you've got enough of an overview of what makes people tick, probably from all the time you spent on the door dealing with every different type of person under the sun. But you've got that life wisdom that means that once you had the—I mean, maybe you're a psychotherapist. I don't know. I but know. if you, if, you, if you don't have that training, if you got that knowledge, the yeah. official training on top of your life experience, you'd literally, you know, change, change people. Those lost causes would be found again. I but mate, that's, that's a long journey. Who am I to say? I you know. Be-
0: so I'm I'm good friends with Charlotte Fox Weber, who's the head of psychotherapy for the School of Life in London, and um, I had her on the podcast, and she was telling me psychotherapists need to have five years of consistent um, sessions on themselves. Mm. Not that they give it. It's like that. That's like saying yeah. you as a PT, you're not allowed to be fat. And also you've got to be really fit before you can be a PT. I thought, I thought that was really, yeah. really cool. Look,
1: yeah, my mum blew me away when she said every, you, it's impossible to be an effective counsellor if you don't have counselling yourself. Oh yeah, Because your own neuroses come out in the way you. Do. you're trying to be objective, but those set pieces that your unconscious I, plays on you will end up interfering with your ability to help them.
0: I love that terminology. I've never heard it before. Set piece behaviour.
1: Yeah, it's just I'm thinking autopilot,
0: autopilot behaviour. I It it makes me think, because what happens with a set piece in a sport, right, is that first the guy runs this way, then this person goes that, then the ball comes in, then this guy goes back across, then this is going to happen, and it's the fact that it happens, this kind of iterative, um, like staccato game of it's like first this, then that, afterwards this, and then it finishes up here. And sometimes yeah. it might go well and sometimes it might go bad. And that's what a yeah. set piece is. And that's what happens when you see people who are part of this, the animus possessed, you know, they're just part of that programming as it goes. Yeah. Um, let, look, let's get back. We have six sins remaining gluttony gluttony is up next and we touched on it earlier on right fitness enhancing we have it's the only time in all of our human evolutionary history where we we're in it's a situation. so funny
1: that you say that i'm sorry the ice cream van is literally perfect Jack. if you go
0: outside and get us a 99 flake now i'll pause the no <laughs> I,
1: I hate that guy because literally, I think I know. It's, I, I must sound like such a dick. Yeah, but I whenever whenever they come past, I think you're just there to make fat teenagers fatter.
0: I don't like mine, so mine goes past the end of my. I don't like mine because he always does it when I'm recording content, and it's always on the take where I've nailed it. You know, <laughs> and I've had the auto cue running for ages, sure, sure. and then it's the what, and then.
1: Yeah, Fuck! yeah, But at least he's got the Just One Cornetto music because for a couple of years, he had some god-awful nursery rhyme. So, oh, you know, we've we got to be grateful the for the little thing. Stuff
0: things. of nightmares. So, yeah, gluttony, fitness enhancing. For a long time, we were in a situation where food was scarce. We didn't know when the next meal was coming. Now the world's changed and we're in this uh, abundant surplus of food. Yeah. But apparently, if we still if we eat too much of it, it's a vice why
1: because it's really really bad for you um if you're so there's been some quite interesting research done with uh, looking at the white matter integrity so the white matter in the brain is like the the neur- neuronal cabling you know like there's billions and billions of wire brain wires sending electrical information from one end to the other reaches a synapse spills a bit, bit of neurotransmitter into the gap travels across to the next neuron in, in, in the chain, and then that one becomes a little bit more or less likely to send its own electrical messages. So it's got this, the reason it's white matter rather than the gray matter is because there's a, a go faster wrapper called myelin around the outside to accelerate the speed of that electrical message so that it can get where it needs to go super, super fast. So when you talk about the integrity of the white matter, it's basically how good is that go faster wrapper Um, Is it is it in good shape or is it in bad shape? And if you look at the brains of people who are obese as far as their BMI is concerned, and you compare them to the brains of people who are lean as far as BMI is concerned, uh, if your average 50 year old, uh, if you're obese, the white matter looks like what you'd get for your average lean 60 something year old. You know, so it ages the brain by 10 years. There's all sorts of kind of cognitive capacities that are reduced so this is obviously it's not vice from the perspective of heaven or hell we're, we're getting away from that entirely a vice in terms of making a hell of your life on earth compared to what it could be um you know i have the greatest sympathy for people who, who struggle not to overeat because i overeat hugely i've that I my
0: whole life i love it it's satisfying I've, all,
1: I've always been a sports person and and since childhood i had tremendous excessive energy and that that wasn't my choice. In fact, it caused my parents, like, I, I I never stopped. I was constantly running around, climbing up things. I wanted to do every sport that was available on the planet. I just wouldn't stop. So all I've done is continue doing that. Even though I keep up the same level of sport, I've still found that I've, I have to constantly focus on eating less, increasing the gaps between my eating so that I don't end up, you know, eating something just before I go to bed and then eating as soon as I get up in the morning, I'm trying to extend that period where I'm fasting. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a constant battle and it's weirdly only now that instead of, cause I can't go to the gym, I can't do anything else. It's only now by doing, um, we get, we're back to the hypocrisy thing again. Uh, I was a little bit overweight BMI wise, and it's only doing 10 K twice a week instead of doing 10 K once a month and my normal, like playing gym and football once a week where I've, where I've, I've lost 4 kilos and I've got down into that healthy BMI for the first time in about 15 20 years. So I'm I'm not I'm not a fat basher because if if I had a different metabolism, if if no if I had an injury that prevented me from doing sufficient work, I struggle to regulate my eating mm. and, and you know like as as much as the next person. But the consequences if you do allow yourself to become obese in terms of your brain health are 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 pretty serious
0: bro the the quality of your life depends upon the quality of your thoughts as far as i'm concerned as the quality of my thoughts have improved the quality of my life has improved linearly actually no it probably increased exponentially it's probably that my life has got better by a factor of how much better my thoughts have got and um Don, Don McGregor from Social Chain said to me on our first ever podcast, he's a big sobriety advocate, as am I, um, elective sobriety, just for people that want more time and money and calories to spend on shit they care about. And uh, he was like, bro, everything in your body is made from the stuff that you put in your mouth. Everything. I was like, yeah. hang on a fucking sec. you You're right. I can't, I can't build anything in my body if I don't first put it on a plate or in a wrap- yeah. wrapper or whatever and then put it in me and I look back. I look back to me at uni, and I think, what was, what was I eating at uni? Like, wake yeah. up, big yeah. bowl of Cheerios, last night's Domino, Domino's pizza, go to lectures, come back, Budweiser, Budweiser, bit of pasta, probably something, go out, yeah. Vod- yeah. vodka, you know? And you think, yeah.
1: like, that's not… But I'm, gl- I'm glad you're mentioning the booze here, because the word gluttony comes from the Latin glutir, which means to to gulp. So so it, it's to over. It's basically it's not just food. People folk gluttony. They always think food, food, food. No, it's it's drink too.
0: An excessive Good. consumption then.
1: Yeah, it's just it, it, So long as it goes in through your mouth. Yeah, it's 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 gluttony. Good. and 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 it's really important to remember the huge amount of sugar that is in. Um, you know, your average can of lager or or glass of wine, not so much vodka, but the stuff you mix the vodka with usually very, very high in sugar. And that's that, you know, those invisible calories, we don't really count those calories, because it's like, it's my God given the God that I don't believe in my God given right to de stress with a glass of this, which turns into a bottle, you know, because it can so easily slide from a glass of wine a day into a bottle, if you're if you've got a big mouth like me, and it takes, you have to notice that one glass has turned into two on a regular basis before you can rein it in. Ideally, don't let it go that – like when you see the slide happen, if, if, if you don't buy it in the shop, then it can't be on your can't, shelf. To tempt can't, you, can't, can't eat your the stuff that's weak. not in
0: the cupboard, man. Yeah, you know, it's the easiest way to not break your diet Okay. the
1: battleground Look, is in the shop it is, if you bring it in through the threshold of your front door, it will it, get in. It's,
0: it's going to be consumed, yeah, one form or another you'll snort it or put it up your bum or do something with it, it's a cookie uh, oh, my right.
1: suppository addiction is getting out of hand
0: next one, lust which was my, personally in the book, that was the uh, chapter that I found the most interesting it was also the mm. one that I can imagine triggered people the most and was the most uncomfortable Um, But I want, if you would, I want you to, first off, actually, do people have conscious control over what makes them feel sexually excited?
1: No, absolutely not. No one should feel guilty for feeling sexual desire towards another person because we have zero control over that. Whether or not we act upon that temptation, whether or not we act upon that attraction is a whole different matter. But the actual, you know, we can't, a gay man can't control whether his lust is triggered by looking at a man or a woman. A straight man cannot decide to be straight or bi or gay. It's just, it's just not, it's not we in our control.
0: We have no conscious control over what makes us feel sexually excited, which is what, I guess, looking back at the ancient way that the church dealt with homosexuality, Makes that a very pernicious um, way for people to have to live. You're... Yeah,
1: I mean, basically, so- sodomy is anything that isn't having sex with the intent of making a baby. Oh, okay. So, any, the with- any, any sexual activity that isn't aimed at making a baby is sodomy in the eyes of Christianity, at least the original, you know, uh, back in the days of Christ.
0: So that would include the withdrawal method, well timed withdrawal method.
1: Yeah, 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 and masturbation, and you oh, know all, wow. all sorts of things. Which everyone that's listening is very
0: innocent. Everyone that's listening is a sodomite. Uh, yeah, pretty much. If you're not a sodomite, if you're listening and you're not a sodomite, I want to I want to meet you because you're interesting.
1: But that's even in the context of a. That's even in the context. If, if you're going to be really strict about it, and then, let's not bash religious perspectives because uh, you know there are different there are different interpretations of this is the this is the original guidance back in the day that inspired the concept of the lust being a seven, one of the seven deadly sins right like this is this is the the, the antecedents to this belief we're all around that but even that, that would be even in the context of of a, of a married couple you know married in a church um if they have sex just for fun that's sodomy like if you have sex with a condom on that's sodomy wow it's bonkers it's
0: yeah bonkers. it is um so can you Take us through the Burns and Swerdlow tumor study. Can you remind me
1: what that is? <laughs> there were a lot of studies. <laughs> so
0: it's the one. It was the one about the uh, married man who was having sex. pedophilic oh, yeah, Sexual yeah, 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 urges. Yeah,
1: yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Yes. Yeah, so um, he's a guy who was, to all intents and purposes, a responsible man. He he was a teacher. He he you know held down. Jobs well, he was liked by you know not the most popular bloke in in, in the school, but he was um, uh, you know stand up member of society. He started uh, developing sexual urges towards his stepdaughter. His stepdaughter mentioned this to her mother, he was, and who
0: was fourteen. Who was fourteen?
1: Um, quite rightly, they um, had a word, you know, and with with the law, and he got banged up for paedophilia because he'd made advances on his stepdaughter. Um, he then complained of a banging headache um, whilst whilst incarcerated, and so they duly took him for a brain scan and found a massive tuna tumor pressing on a part of his brain. Um, they removed the tumor. He then claimed said that all of his paedophilic fantasies had disappeared. Um, he no longer wished that he could still have his, you know, like when, when he was in prison, he still. Was hankering for his uh, collection of paedophilic um, material.
0: He was going after uh, the um, the nurses as well, or like the assistants that were in the recovery facility yeah, he was it, in as well. Up. He was like, there was yeah, anyone that he was going to make an advance at, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then, so, so they let him out because they believed that the removal of this tumor had removed his paedophilic tendency. So the idea was it was like disinhibition, like. I think people who have those urges, it's not not that the urges went away, it's his ability to to suppress them, his ability to do right by the law and do right by not harming other people. But then once the tumour grew back when he was out of prison, the paedophilic tendencies came back, presumably because he he lost his capacity to resist those urges, and then he ended up back in prison again. So the reason it's a really fascinating case is because it's so rare to have a case where the the paedophilic tendencies were switched on and offable according to the presence or absence of a tumour. That's why it's fascinating.
0: Dude, it that study blew me away it reminded me i can't remember the particular gentleman's name but the guy who was in the bell tower that was shooting people shot his family shot himself and then said you need to do an autopsy on my brain found out it was a huge tumor pressing on the area of the brain which is to do with aggression and he just felt this like unrelenting aggression but I mean, even that man like we don't have conscious control over what makes us feel sexually excited we do have conscious control over whether or not we act on those urges that's right. That's that's what we've got. But that yeah. that brings up there's a, a big section in the book about uh, paedophilia, which I think is a fascinating topic. And ever since I was seeing a girl at uni, and one of her housemates went to go and give a talk, uh, at a lecture theatre, saying that we need to treat people with paedophilia with more compassion, because mm. do you think that these people want to be attracted to children? Given yeah. the choice of all of the different things that they could be attracted to in the world, yeah. do you think they want to be attracted to children? And yeah. ever since then, I've I've been stuff like this absolutely fascinates me. The thought, no, of I, I how do we think about it philosophically? How do we see it societally? Yeah. You know.
1: Well, let's think of it from the perspective of what's best for society. Right? We we, we want to reduce as much as possible the incidents of paedophiles making advances on children because obviously that scars children for the rest of their lives and it causes huge huge problems so so what's a what's a pragmatic way of dealing with that problem it's certainly not to make them feel vilified so the minute they accept it everyone in in their life turns away from them when they if they were to go to a doctor you know that they they would they would worry probably quite rightly that they might get reported to the police because I'd imagine, I don't know for sure that your average GP has, has a duty or might feel a duty to report this because that person, even if they say I'm controlling it, but these urges are there, well, do you really want to take the risk that they're saying one thing and doing another? Of course not. So, but the thing is, if you or I were a paedophile, where would we go for help? And that's the bit that I think we need to focus on. If there's no one to turn to, where do you go? You hide it, you suppress it. Is that a good way to deal with problems? Invariably no. You know, if, if you bottle it and pretend it's not there, it's, it's likely to grow, you know, can get worse and worse. You need help. But wh- where can these people go for help? So I think what's happened over the course of, you know, all time until now, because they're so vilified, they're considered evil, wrong, broken, beyond redemption. Um, they know full well that the only people who are gonna they're gonna get a sympathetic ear from are, are the paedophiles, and so then it's going to go from entertaining thoughts to oh shit! Have you checked out this website? It
0: catalyzes the situation, or, 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 doesn't it? By or being 20 alien. years
1: ago, like oh, I can get hold of some videos and you know VHS videos or, or DVDs or whatever, and then and then it circulates and then it goes underground, and that's the bit that concerns me. Society's quite understandable. Attitude of disgust towards paedophiles only serves to drive them underground, and and it's such a hard problem to deal with. I think most people just like, oh, I don't want to think about this anymore, and then they 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 probably don't think about it until it comes up in the news again. But I think we need to address it. It's just who's going to do it? Like I I certainly thought twice about putting. I thought it was important to include that information, but on a number of occasions, I thought maybe I'm going to take it out because I don't want to sound like an apologist. That's absolutely what I am not. Um, but at the same time, you've got to discuss it because it happens in the world. And, you know, there's a, there's a proportion of people who have those tendencies and pretty much all of them in the UK, as far as I know, don't have anywhere to turn to get help, to get therapy, to get, be be taught the tools of how to deal with it in a way that doesn't ruin their quality of life or that of anyone else's.
0: I think you said there's a call line, special yeah, a but call line that's 50 percent of the calls are unanswered due yeah. to the call line not being sufficiently well manned yeah. and i'm like i don't know man like i'd be interested the people that are listening i'd be really interested to hear what you think like give me a dm or comment below or whatever because um it's a fa- it's a really fascinating topic and uh, you know Anyone that wants to say, oh, this is making this is an apologist thing for pedophile, like, fuck off, man. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. This has got nothing to do with that. It's to do with how can we have an effective society which helps to bring everybody along with it. And at what point do you make someone culpable for the thoughts that are in their head? Like, mm. are you actually going to make someone culpable not only for thought crime, but for thought crime that by definition in neuroscience, they do not have conscious control over?
1: Yeah, which which is and the evidence. Holy fucking is, shit! Some of your listeners won't have read it, right? Almost by definition. And and the bit that that really made me think differently about it is this thing called a plethysmography. One of the hardest words to pronounce in science. Say it again. What Plestiz- <laughs> bastard? Plethysm. <laughs> plestismo- Ah, you got me. Plethysmography. So you basically put a collar around the base of the penis, and so you're measuring whether or not the person gets an erection, right? It's a completely objective measure of sexual arousal. There's a similar thing in, in, in women called photoplethysmography, which measures the uh, lubrication of the vagina. Essentially, when female genitalia become aroused, it lubricates. When male... Uh, well, it changes shape somewhat um, and lubricates, and in the male, it, uh, it, 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 you know, the penis becomes turgid, so you can put the rod inside the hole. It's, it's you know, biological and simple, but especially um, so, so, so. What I'm what I'm talking about is the the sexual arousal thing is something that we have no control over. And in some of these studies that came out of a lab in Canada, the interesting thing was in order to make sure they had a population of purely pedophilic people they and then they compared them against purely non pedophilic people because obviously some people there'll be overlap mm-hmm. they showed both parties children porn and adult porn and the pedophiles got no response from the adult pornography whether it was gay or straight or anything else they exclusively got a sexual response from uh, the pedophilic content which is why they're included and vice versa um they had to make sure that those who were turned on by um, uh, you know, adult consenting, uh, we hope, pornography, yeah. um, that, the, you know, they weren't also a little bit turned on by the paedophiles in order to make sure that you really are comparing apples and oranges, that you are, you know, you're getting the populations purely paedophilic and purely um, non-paedophilic. And, and so the fact that they bothered to do that is is quite interesting in and of itself. But the fact that these people are incapable of becoming sexually aroused to anything other than children. It's like you you wouldn't wish that on your worst enemy, right? Ah, oh, man,
0: it's it, and that's the thing as well. Especially when you roll the clock back and you realize that for a very very long time, as soon as a girl was fertile, she would be pregnant. In fact, there's, there's even and- there's even a term for the uh, period between her first uh, period. And when she becomes fertile, I mm. can't remember the word for it, but there's a, a medieval term for that period because it was so commonly used by the waiting male for this, well, I don't know, what, 13, 14 probably for most girls when they start puberty, I don't know.
1: Juliet, um, in Romeo and Juliet, was around about that age.
0: Yeah, I mean, fucking Game of Thrones, there you go. Um, Daenerys, but y- you get my point. Like, Speaking it, of made-up drama. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, right, two more things, two more things in Lust that I really, I really thought was cool. Um, I didn't realise that the female orgasm has a reproductive function. What, is it the cilia, is it called?
1: Yeah, the yeah. little hair-like, um, hair-like extensions that, that reach out into the fallopian tube. It right. actually wafts the sperm into the correct, you know, there's two fallopian tubes, um, and it wafts it into the one that the egg will be found in, yeah. over and above the one that didn't produce so- an egg.
0: I've, is that selective from an evolutionary sense?
1: Sure, I mean I, I don't see how else it could have occurred.
0: Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, woman enjoys sex. Someone that she has a emotional and physical connection with equals more likely to orgasm equals more likely to direct the sperm through this Mexican wave of little cilia, cilia things down. I mean that even just learning that, bro, like the fact. And that,
1: conversely, do you, do you want to know a bit that I didn't put in? Hit me. Do you know what the male male foreskin? does in in practical physical terms
0: uh acts as a little helmet and it's
1: one of its functions that it, it it does the job well whether it was designed for that purpose or not is is you know very difficult to discern but it it extracts the previous deposit of semen so that your semen makes it to the finish line. I know
0: I thought that was is that not to do with the like the coronal head shape of the penis itself that creates a suction inside of the vagina? Is that not how that works? I didn't I think, think that it's was a bit a, of, I, I, Okay. I think
1: I think like that, but then in order for it to in order for it to I'm doing a oh, grab. Oh,
0: okay. So it's ca- it's catching it as it goes, oh dude, that's so disgusting. But it's funny, isn't it? Like
1: if if that's true, and I don't know for sure whether it's true. I've just read some papers that suggest I've, I've heard it. I've heard it as well. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the concept of us being historically, biologically um, uh, monogamous is slightly dubious. Well, if the, we've
0: We're the only, were the the, only mammals on the planet. We're the only mammals on the planet, if that's the case. Final thing, final bit in Lust. Fidel yeah. Castro had sex with 35,000 women. <laughs> Bro.
1: Yeah. <laughs> What's yeah. going on? That's, that's um, slightly shocking. If that's not Lust that's lust, that's out of control lust. That's properly out of control.
0: Probably linked in with a lot of pride, probably linked in with a lot of envy, a lot of wrath. Agreed. Agreed.
1: Absolutely. I don't, I, I I, I tried to go off on a tangent of sin bundles, like it, you know, men who aren't happy with having two or three kids, but in some cultures, you know, they'll have, they'll have 20, 30 kids with multiple wives it's like why, why, why do you need to do this? Like it, that's not just lust. That's that that goes way beyond lust. Like you said, it's it's greed, it's pride, um, so many other things. Yeah, envy, like the desire to cause envy in others.
0: Mm, Yeah, which is in itself a, a kind of a way of pride as well, isn't it? Yeah, dude. It's so interesting how these all how these all interplay. I think kind of to to um footnote the the lust category. It's one of the most binary categories, I think, here, that because of the way that typical relationships are formatted, like there's not really a line when you say that someone's being greedy and not being greedy, right? It's like, oh, well, if you accrued this much wealth, there's your greed threshold, yeah, and yeah, over yeah, that right. bracket, you're a your relative, oh, right. yeah. Or, or you 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 ate this much food, but you're not allowed to eat this much food. You're officially a glutton or whatever.
1: I, I, I think I think if there were a threshold, it's if your excess leaves others without,
0: it's a good way but to put it. that's a hard thing to measure. It's a lot less hard than you cheated on your partner. Yeah. Uh, or you had sex with thirty-five thousand women. Yeah, yeah. That's like Fidel. Again, that's look, like it's been it's been two thousand five hundred women. Let's leave it there. You know, <laughs> yeah. let's just let's call it a day, mate. Are you not
1: tired? It's funny, isn't it? Um, so many people uh, have blamed their prof- profligacy on. Um, sex addiction but sex addiction isn't even acknowledged by the psychiatric world like do
0: you think it will become um
1: don't know i mean well it's, it's all about whether there's sufficient evidence to support it if that evidence comes along then yeah if not no it'll never make it into it, it become but it's, it's funny isn't it that people bandy it around left oh i'm a sex addict oh yeah he's just a, he or she is a complete sex addict it's like but it's not a thing it's just, it's just, it's not yet.
0: But then, depression, depression wasn't um, categorized as a, a an official mental health disorder. I don't think until only fairly recently. Mm. Um, and you're not in Freud's day. Yeah, true. Okay, so envy next. You say envy is the least fun of all capital <laughs> vices. What makes envy different to the other ones?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, when you feel envious, it's unpleasant, isn't it? But when you snap at someone who's doing your head in, Roth, it's quite fleetingly satisfying even if you might regret it in the long run um you know if you win at poker and you end up winning all the money and the other 11 people or whatever around the table don't get it that's fleetingly satisfying until the next time you go back to play poker and lose it all again so envy is you know th- there's there's benign envy which is good which is where What's What's you that? you compare yourself to other people um Usually it's people who had a similar start in life uh, that that this works with, like grew up in a similar part of the world, similar level of education, similar opportunity, similar start in life. Yet one person, the other person, has gone way beyond you and it can make you feel, you can respond to that in different ways. Uh, on, On Benign envy is where you examine them, you work out what did they do that I didn't and you learn from them. And you work out gaps in your sort of toolkit of ways to manage your life and deal with the world. And you maybe, you know, think, you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn how to do that. Or I'm going to start moving in more influential circles so that I can maybe get some of those trappings too, you know. We, envy helps us realize when we're lagging behind other people in our social group um, and we're not getting as much as they are. So it can alert us to possibilities, to potential. The dark side of envy is malicious envy because there are two ways you can even the gap out. You can either pull yourself up by your bootstraps in order to get to a similar level to, to the person you're envious of, but there's also the other way of uh, circulating malicious gossip and bringing them tumbling down. Like So quite often people respond uh, to their feelings, perfectly natural feelings of envy by wanting to bring about the downfall of that other person. By any means necessary. So, the envy can inspire awful behaviours, incredibly antisocial behaviour um, in in some people in some circumstances.
0: I love the the way that you put it. You said envy has a sense of injustice at its core. That's yeah. a, a really nice. Well, it's
1: unfair, isn't it? Why have they got all this and I've got nothing? Why are they? Duh, 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 why are they? Duh, duh, duh? You know, it's a it's the old refrain, isn't it? I, it the other may, bit
0: is um, go on. Just envy being useful, and motivating you to compete, makes sense. Hmm. It also makes sense from a, a an evolutionary, a fitness enhancing perspective, right? You think like, oh, well, this is this is my get up and go, and so much of this is in it, it's your own ability to take yourself out of yourself and see someone that's doing really really well, yeah. or even not see someone who's doing badly, but kind of just slowly creeping up on you and yeah. not seeing it as a threat, not seeing it as a zero sum game. Yeah.
1: The the interesting thing about envy is it's one of the one of the four where that that brain area, D A C C that's involved in pain, um, at the moment people feel envy when they read about someone else from their childhood doing really, really well, much, much better than them, that brain area kicks in hard at that moment you feel envy. You know, it's sort of inner turmoil is what is what inspires a lot of unpleasant behaviors. You know, that's that's often the first link in the chain that leads to unpleasant antisocial behaviors. Which I I was shocked that I kept finding this brain area because I have to admit, I when I set out on this project, I hadn't done I hadn't done the research before I wrote the book proposal. I found out what I found, and then. I reflected on it and then, and then wrote a book about it. So I couldn't believe how lucky I was getting four out of five. And actually, gluttony was one of the ones that this brain area didn't uh, kick, kick up in.
0: How would, after- that, how would that have operated? Would that be when you are going to have the food and you don't have the food and you feel pain?
1: Yeah, it's, it's when you're, you're trying. Well, funnily enough, um, I can't remember the exact study, but a couple of months after the book was published, a study did come out suggesting that in people that have problems um, with overeating, that at the moment they make that choice to give in to it, it's almost like the, the, the emotional turmoil of the self-loathing of, oh, God, here I go again. My resolve is crumbling. Um, From memory, this was a year ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I remember thinking, oh, if only I delayed by another six months, I could have okay, included this. Then it would have been six out of seven, but I had to discount lust. The DACC was the, like, across, there's so many studies done showing people porn in in MRI brain imaging tubes. And the DACC comes up again and again and again and again and again. But I had to discount it because it's also a brain area that deals in all sorts of conflict. And if there's one thing that you're told over and over again in the MRI tube, it's don't move, don't move, don't move. And I think that produces huge conflict when, under normal circumstances, when people are watching porn, They do move a certain part of their body. Mm, You catch my drift. Yes. So to not be able to touch yourself when you're watching porn might be the thing that was causing the ACC, not the porn in and of itself.
0: The the, the pain of having to withhold your uh, hands from touching yourself.
1: uh, Yeah, which isn't Uh, really what...
0: That's not this. Yeah, you can't isolate it, right?
1: I guess. Actually, now I'm reflecting on it again. You could say that That's involved in the urge of doing something you know you shouldn't. It's just in the case of doing it for the (laughs) sake of science. because
0: there's a lady watching you in an fMRI machine. (laughs) That's definitely something that you know you shouldn't.
1: I met met this guy uh, at the Society for Neuroscience conference about 10 years ago who who did some of the early fMRI studies. Um, He's in Groningen in, in the Netherlands. And he said it was really, really hard to get radiographers to come and support that research because they thought it all sounded a bit dirty and seedy. Mm. So in the early days, it was really hard to get... Because in, in that context, he wasn't showing people porn. He was getting couples to come in and do sexy time. You know, one person stays really, really still and their partner would uh, manipulate them in the scanner, bring them to ejaculation. That
0: has to be a very challenging situation. You've got one person... I mean, anyone that's ever been in an MRI machine... Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not. It's hardly the most sort of seductive. It's not like the, the candles and the Barry White aren't aren't quite playing, are they? Yeah. No, um, it's
1: not. But then I guess, so, you know. Okay, so, like so we we, folks, we, we, we understand that
0: we understand that envy is this comparison mechanism that's going on. I guess that's got to be exacerbated in a world where social media shows us a, a shop window into the best of everybody's lives.
1: Correct. Be careful who you envy because quite often the people that, the others that people typically envy project success and that everything's great, but actually behind the scenes, are they really great? You know, is life really as gravy when they're back home as when they're on the sofa, on telly, you know. Quite often it's not the case but we don't look into the backstory behind these people there's loads and loads of people in the public eye who when they when they when they roll out on stage when they roll out on uh, in front of, on, on, in the studio in front of the lights and the TV cameras they put they put on a face that just exudes success but actually behind the scenes they've got a crushing horrible existence um, that they carefully hide from everyone it's not all it's not it's not the case with everyone but it just seems such a horrible shame that People are like consumed with envy, wishing they could have the trappings of, let's say, this reality TV star who's just, you know, gone, gone from nothing to having an awesome life, seemingly. If actually behind the scenes, they, they, they wished none of it had happened because they were happier
0: before. But, well, bro, I mean, you won't know, I'm guessing, based on the world that you come from and the sort of content that you consume. But I was, on, I was the first person through the doors of season one of Love Island. So I've, no way! And I've done Take Me Out, I've been to Fernando's, I've seen Paddy McGuinness, all that full work. So I'm full tick wanker, right? I, I, I've seen both sides of this fence. And I couldn't agree more. Some of the most miserable, least fulfilled, least actualized people that I know have the most followers. Um, and... There's this video that me and Dean, Video Guy Dean, uh, will finish very soon. It's based around this Naval Ravikant quote, right? And it says, you cannot take part of someone's life. You have to take the whole. We look at people and we presume that we can pick apart certain elements, certain characteristics of either their life or their success or their makeup and have them piecemeal. You Mm. don't get to have it piecemeal. This isn't a fucking buffet. This is all or nothing. you look at Elon Musk and you think he's so successful, he's got this amazing work ethic, he's like PayPal mafia, billionaire, super fucking genius Tony Stark guy, but you don't know what Elon Musk's relationship with his body's like, what he thinks when he looks at himself in the mirror. You don't know the thoughts that go through his head. When he, when he hits the pillow on a night time for three hours this night. You don't know if he can't ever speak to his father because he's destroyed his relationship with his father. It's like, what is the price of being Elon Musk? Mm, like, mm. are you prepared to pay that price to yeah. be Elon Musk? And I think you're bang on the money. A lot of the time, man, I, I don't think that people are. And this is, be careful who you envy is a lovely way to phrase it, man. And, you know... The fact can, can I
1: rephrase it because it's like you, you can't help when the envy kicks in. It's a bit like love. Yeah, yeah, you can't. You, you, like you, you either feel envious or you don't. You, you don't summon it; it just comes, right? It's a, it's a, it's a natural emotion. It's it's one of one of the natural human emotions. But once it has arisen, I think it's important to evaluate whether or not that person is worthy of your envy. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like I, I don't want people to feel, oh God, I've got to stop envying that mate from school is really rich and that mate from school's got an awesome relationship mm. and is constantly posting brilliant stuff on social media like like d- don't beat yourself up for feeling the envy but examine the likely cause of that envy and compare that to the realities like do some research find out is it like i remember being blown away when one of my female friends says oh i always know when my friends are having a crisis uh, in their relationships because they post amazing photos of look where my husband took me look at the wonderful meal we're having look at the incredible view but like i always knew there was something funny about that but i didn't realize that some people use it as a diagnostic tool to work out <laughs> when to pick up the phone and and and, and an
0: Hayley, is everything okay i've seen a lot of coupley photos over the yeah. last couple of weeks
1: and i was like oh my god that's incredible reverse psychology like that's brilliant that's clever it blew me away because i remember thinking when I see that stuff, I always think, why do you need to do that? Like, I, I also find myself doing something awesome and thinking, oh, maybe I'll take a photo of this and put something up on social media for the first time in three months. And then I think, no, I don't want to make other people feel envious of the like one month in the last three years when I've done something. When, really when, great. I've, when
0: I've looked cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the, the bizarre thing of that is that envy, causing envy, inducing envy in other people is a signaling technique that allows you to reaffirm your position in the dominance hierarchy, mm-hmm. right? So I've not thought of that. And unfortunately, you need to play the game. I keep on talking about this all the time. Like, I love conversations like this doing my podcast. I absolutely adore it. But I'm going to keep thirst trapping the shit out of people on my Instagram for as long as I've got abs and a jawline. Like, I'm going to keep on doing that because I'm going to play the game. And yeah. if if that is slightly less virtuous, it's like, okay... But I, there's only so much that you can hate the player, right? Like these are the rules that have yeah. been set, and yeah. if the end result is that I gain X number of thousand followers per year, which I can then drive to a project which I absolutely adore yeah, yeah, and love,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. And But this- playing the game in order to realise um, uh, greater greater benefits in the long run,
0: I hope so. It's
1: short time, short time, nasty. Behaviour for long-term good uh,
0: I, I, Well, but then maybe I'm just fucking pulse-talking the shit out of it and I'm just for for I, Chris, full I, know, I, know, I know
1: exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. And I, I, I've probably gone the other way. By not playing the game, I've probably undersold myself. Mm. Like my worst nightmare when I started presenting TV stuff, I've presented half a dozen shows over, over, over a decade. BBC, Sky, Discovery Science, T- TLC, I even did some stuff on MTV. Like I've done loads and loads of stuff. But my absolute worst nightmare was I really hope I don't become like recognizable in the street because I, I enjoy my privacy. And, I, and I, I've seen the pain in celebrities' eyes when people come up and ask them for autographs. I say, oh, God, here we go again. I can't go anywhere without being bothered by people like that. That's my worst nightmare. Mm. But in not playing the game a little bit and not trying to raise my profile, it's got to the point where. The BBC don't call me to present the brain stuff. They call Michael Moseley and they call the Van Tolkien twins. I, I think they're all great, but I am not getting the calls. Not now, playing
0: I, that game. I,
1: I've, I've made my peace with it because I, I write books and I present at conferences, or at least I did pre-COVID. You know, I, I was doing okay and I, I, di- I felt I didn't need the fame. But by not playing the game, because I'm trying to be like ridiculously virtuous, mm. I've probably sold myself short. I haven't got as far as I could be. So I'm I'm absolutely not judging you. And I didn't mean it when I said do oh, nice no. things in the short term to achieve great things in the long run. It was just uh, shorthand.
0: I know. I get it, man. But I, I use this example all the time. I've never had someone come out of one of my club nights and say, hey, man, I was on the, the verge of despair. I was having this existential crisis. I feel alone. I feel lost. And then when I went in and I had one of those one-pound Jaeger bombs and heard those banging tunes, man, you know, you just really turn my life. I've never had that. But I get <laughs> that now, like – three five times a day a dm wow. from someone that says Brilliant. bro this and i've got this big gallery of like a, a folder on my iPhotos photos that's like every message i've ever received it's like hundreds of messages now right back oh, from two and a bit years but the fact that like if if that's the price that I have to pay, right? If I need to pay a little bit of discomfort of perhaps being yeah. more transparent in order to then create a platform for that to happen. And the thing yeah. is, and this is something that might be interesting for you to consider is like, if by you doing that, people come to you and they come up to you and they want your autograph or they want to get a photo with you, but they say, Jack, man, I I really want to find out a little bit more about that Burns and Madlow study about the guy that did that to me. Like when someone says, dude, I'm watching uh, episode 34 from the, the 10th of May, 2018. And in it, some guy watched the second and third episode back to back while he was painting his house the other day and asked, why the camera was in the same position but we changed t-shirts did we film it in the same night (laughs) and i was like holy fucking shit like dude that's so cool that you watched both of the episodes and realized that i got everyone to take a change of clothes but i didn't move the camera or the lamp so (laughs) you rumbled the fact that i got two episodes out of one sitting and like that's really fulfilling to me like (laughs) i love the fact that you have like people that care about what you do you know so i don't know man like no,
1: the thing is, so I don't. I'm, the envy was pricked when you mentioned that you get. I was anticipating you say, "I get, I get three or five a, a week,"
0: yeah, because no.
1: I was extrapolating from my one a month if I'm lucky on yeah. Twitter. But, 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 but my point is, um, it's. I always try and think of it in order to not think. Oh, why don't more people say this? For every one person that bothers to say something nice about how. One of my books really spoke to them, and they felt a benefit from. It. There's 999 people who thought it and didn't bother. And didn't do
0: it, <laughs> oh, man. 100. What, dude? You, you absolutely correct. Like the the silent listeners, and this again is something I've been throwing this terminology around since the start of the year. Gas your friends up, and um, it's like just something some I saw, and but it, it really made me think, like. There's so many times that my mates do cool stuff. I'm fortunate that I have a circle of people that just make amazing, cool things. And um, there's so many times that I see them do cool shit. And for a long time, I wouldn't, I, w- I just wouldn't reach out. Not that I was envious, not that I, I just, you know, path of least resistance, like you don't message them. And now I use that as a trigger. And it's such a good habit to get into. A few things, actually. Firstly, if you ever miss your friends, the second that you think about missing them, text them. Text them and tell them, I, hey, I man, think, uh, "Hey man, hey we'll man, I've been them. I've been thinking we'll about you. Yeah, yeah, you know, like I've been thinking about you, dude. Like, hope that you're good. Or yeah. like, if someone releases something and you watch half of the YouTube video or you see that they've invited you to like their new business, bro, love that you're doing the new business. Like, real good, good luck. Like, I'm super excited to see what happens. Like, the more that you drill that, and if you can make it almost instinctive, like, yeah. it must. Some of my mates must fucking hate me because I'm just like I'm so n- not needy, but." overbearingly supportive in, in, in touch yet yeah, at times but I, I love it it really really fulfills me and this is why I think people reaching out to their content creators it's the virtuous good side of social media that you have a direct channel between you and the people that make the yes, things that you yeah, enjoy yeah. consuming right and also
1: you don't have other people telling you what you can and can't do in terms of your content you get freedom to do what you feel is the right thing to do which I think is huge and that's what I love about podcasting and youtubing that anyone can do it if they're inspired to follow in your footsteps, they can. They might not end up with your level of success, but I always say, you know, th- there's a lovely German phrase which is um der Weg ist das Ziel. The the, the the sorry to any German speaks that's a terrible pronunciation, but it means the journey is the destination. Meaning you get you can get huge amounts of um implicit reward. Sorry, intrinsic reward as opposed to extrinsic reward from the process of doing something that you enjoy you've said a number of times how much you enjoy doing this podcast and 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 it just gives like you're giving a lot you're giving uh, a platform for other people like me to say the stuff that they're excited about but it's um the way you described it suggests that you get implicit pleasure from having these interactions and enlightening getting feedback from your listeners and so forth so but the point is it doesn't even matter if you're successful in your endeavor if you enjoy the process of doing the endeavor that that hugely promotes your well-being so yeah. i i am i am the proud owner of a youtube channel that i present like every week i do something and i i get less than you know i get 10 12 14 viewers
0: link my in show like, notes below go and subscribe to jack's channel now link will be in the show notes <laughs> below go and ha- go and hustle him on his next great
1: man next vr time. please someone watch it but i don't really my mates are like why did you do this um and i'm like because i just really love doing it in a way i don't really care like it might be that two or three years down the line people are like oh look here's someone who's not 18 reviewing vr games that could be cool and, and it might be that there's always the promise that it might become a success later but I learned so much from one month to the next of doing these weekly things. Like They used to last an hour. That's bonkers. Now they're half an hour episodes. You know, I used to review multiple games in one set. I now do one at a time. And and I reckon when I get to the year point, I'm going to take them all down, re-edit them so they don't look so bloody awful. and, And the same footage will suddenly potentially get some traction. But the point is pursuing your hobbies. Hobbies are great because they never end. Like if you finally complete one painting, you can start the next one. If you master one instrument, there's always more music to learn. <laughs> if you, or, or more instruments to learn. Like That's the stuff that we get happiness from, and satisfaction and well-being. But it seems so normal and average and boring, like hobbies are so unexciting. But it's tremendously satisfying to pursue multiple hobbies because the whole point is you're not trying to get anywhere apart from forwards.
0: No one talks about them anymore, you know? No one, like... You don't get asked the question, what are your hobbies? Like no, what do, what do you do as your hobbies? It's what do you do? Um Gary V's hustle and grind mentality, have you got your K Swiss with the words tattooed on the bottom of them on? Like all that all that stuff. Like did you only sleep four hours last night? All that bullshit. Like I, I dude, I doing things for the the sheer enjoyment of them. Speaking as someone who only did things for commercial gain for a decade, did like you, all, right. all I was bothered about was the success of the business and making money and being well regarded in a a, a world of people who are all drunk. And but I, it's, what was
1: the turnaround point? What was the moment of realization? I'm just, dying. just
0: after, just after Love Island, man. So I went on to Love Island oh. and spent my time. I, I had a borderline existential crisis. Just after and during love island um and it didn't manifest on tv no one would be able to see what was going on basically i spent my time around a bunch of people that were really the persona that i had been pretending to be for 10 years and i was delivered a fatal dose of contrast between the person i thought i was and people who truly are that and i realized holy fucking shit like that guy there Bottomless charisma, endless extroversion—like he's a lad about town—and he does this, that, and the other. And I realized that I'm, I'm this, I'm the person hmm. that the listeners have heard for the last 170, 180 episodes, three hundred plus hours of me talking wow. to all sorts of different people. This is what I want to do. I want to nourish myself, m- like involve my curiosity, like just satisfy my curiosity. And I would do it if no one listened. I've always said. And you
1: feel better now?
0: Oh, dude, I'm, I'm this is the year of maybe not the year of transcending, but it's definitely the year of actualizing 2020 is like the year of actualizing for me. Like I've never felt mental well being so much. I've never felt so fulfilled. I feel connected to the project. I feel connected to the project that I do. I'm getting, yeah, there's some reward from the audience and stuff like that, but dude, I do, I do if no one listened, you know? And, um, it's, it's fixing a lot of the other things as well. It's helping me to bring other people up, even outside of the podcasting world, because I don't care about Envy anymore. I'm like, oh, dude, awesome. You got a new business that did super, super well. I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk to this guy that understands the neuroscience of the seven deadly sins this evening. And I'll see you later on. like Because yeah. that's what I want to do. Because yeah, you've
1: got your own stuff going on and you're not in direct competition, yeah.
0: So looping it back to Envy, man, that's... But can um, I just say, it's amazing
1: that I never would have thought that Love Island could deliver such a positive Bro. benefit in someone's life. Only
0: it? only person that was catapulted into a life of virtue and integrity from Love Island.
1: That's what I mean. It's like it's amazing. I'll take, so, that.
0: I'll take that title. Yeah, Look, we have two happen. we have two deadly sins remaining. We have oh, greed. Okay. Greed first. Uh oh. greed seems pretty natural. Yes. Modern capitalist society. Is it is it mm-hmm. just resource acquisition gone awry? What is it?
1: gone bonkers yeah um so pure greed is pretty nasty because t- for the individual this isn't even the antisocial consequences of it but if, if you think of the consequences of let's say su- successful greed no matter how much you've got you want more you've got this burning desire like You've made a six-figure salary. You want your first million. You've got a million. You want tens of million. You, you want to be a billionaire. Like, I always think of that guy in um, Silicon Valley, the three-comma club.
0: I've not watched it.
1: Oh, mate, you've got to watch Silicon Good. Valley. It's a very, very funny – well, for a geek like me, it's a very funny comedy. Um, but, yeah, it's – whenever people go up that pillar towards greater and greater riches, what's their instinct? To protect their wealth. From other people, they end up in gated communities. They end up, you know, driving in a fat car into an underground car park so that they don't have to come across the riffraff. Like they actively socially distance themselves from other people. They end up socializing in um, in, in corridors, in, in in environments, and communities where no one really likes each other. They're just competitive over who's got more money. You know, like if you look at the plight of the super rich there was a much higher incidence of psychological problems, psychiatric issues, because they all end up being somewhat isolated. So, so that's like the extreme of greed, like the absolute super rich. Like you mentioned Elon Musk earlier behind the scenes. Who knows whether he's happy or sad, but... He's when- selling,
0: sorry to interject there, he's selling sorry. all of his possessions, including all of his houses. All oh, right, what- Everything except for a couple of cars.
1: And what's his um, explanation for that?
0: He thinks that possessions are an attack vector.
1: Wow. Interesting way of phrasing it.
0: Bro, P- his, most recent, his most recent Joe Rogan, you would adore it. And I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts about why his motivations are the way they are. The particular terminology that he uses, he's obviously a man that lives in a world of mental models a lot um, hmm. and has multidisciplinary thinking and is probably a fucking freak, savage polymath, but has this very, very particular way of looking at the world. And I, it it sounds to me at the moment, like somebody that is on his haunches, waiting for, for, for a a predator to come around the corner just a little Mm. bit. Um, Mm. But yeah, he's selling all of his worldly possessions, which again is that's just, if there was ever a, um, a marker in the ground of the fact that someone's concerned about greed, it's like, I'm Mm. so, I'm so, um, eaten up by the concern of greed that I have to do the thing that is the complete antithesis of greed.
1: Yeah, right. Well, no, I mean, maybe he's just pursued the, the you know, the world tells us that the more material, you know, advertising tells us the more material goods you can afford, the, the happier you are. Look at the people you hang, all the beautiful people you hanging out with, the amazing places you'll be going to. money's the best thing in the world. But like, actually, money, look at, look at your average lottery winner they end up falling out with everyone in their life because everyone quite understandably goes, thinks to themselves, well, you used used to not have a pot to piss in. Now you've got shitloads. Can you lend me a grand? Well, could you give me a grand? Like you've got a million. Could you give me a grand? It's not a lot of money. That's not an unreasonable proposition, but the person on the receiving end of that request is probably going to say to themselves, well, well, hang on, would you do that for me? No, no, hang on, wait. And it, it just always, it becomes about the money. Like if you look at, People who've been greedy and managed to accrue lots of resources, their kids end up fighting over the inheritance. You know, like families fall out over money. Money, sort of excesses of money are crazy. And then I always think of that that, that economic study that showed the relationship between salary and happiness levels, like your overall contentment with life. And there is, of course, there is a relationship between income and happiness when, when you're low down on the scale. Because if you don't have enough money to get the basic necessities of life, a roof over your head, food in your belly, being able to live in an area where you feel safe and secure, you know, if you can double your salary, which means you can move to a better area and you can make sure that you have good, healthy food to eat, you know, it will, earning more money will, you know, like a little modicum of greed, as always, a little bit can benefit you because it can motivate you to do more, to work harder, to fight against sloth to actually get something done, earn more money, and pull yourself up. But beyond a certain point, this endless pursuit of more is is the antithesis of reaching a point of contentment and satisfaction. Like, there's an argument that humans aren't designed to be happy for longer than a few minutes, a few hours, a few days at a time, and then we go back to feeling just normal, right? No one is perpetually happy, apart from maybe that bloke you mentioned on Love Island. Um, (laughs) uh, But yeah, so, pursuing more ad infinitum doesn't make anyone happy. It can look like it from the outside relatively, but actually with money comes responsibility. Once you've got something that you could lose, then the anxiety, the baggage of shit, what happens if I lose this? It's, it's great, I think, to be slowly, incrementally on the way up, but you never wanna go down again, you know? That's crushing. So if you I, I, I have nothing but sympathy for people who go from nothing to absolute vast riches and notoriety, because once you reach a pinnacle, the only way is down and you live your whole <laughs> life worrying then. And, and then even if you are happy and you manage to maintain it, when you have a down day, how do you explain that? You've got all the money. You live in a great place. You've got, you know, you've bought no excuses, all the great things. No, like, no. you, you how, how do you deal with the fact that you're feeling miserable for no reason at all? If, you, if you're living a normal life, then it can sit more comfortably. The acceptance of the inevitability of sometimes feeling glum for no particular reason, it's just easier to accept if you're not in possession of all the things that society tells you guarantees endless happiness. Like, it's just, it's just insane. Like uh, I, I look at the people around me, like some of my mates are super rich self-made people. Some of them don't have a pot to piss in, but are doing something with their life that they enjoy. Th- th- there is no rhyme or reason. Like there's no one set one, like some of them are happy and others are ha- No, there's no, the riches don't make them happy. The, the, the riches, rich people can be happy. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that like greed guarantees that you'll be unhappy but greed neither guarantees nor you know in other works towards or against ultimately feeling content and happy in your life beyond a certain threshold um if you're living a humble existence but you enjoy what you do and you feel like what you're doing is is worthwhile and it's satisfying that's like the pot of gold that really counts
0: i get it man being rich won't make you happy but being poor can make you miserable that's the, the dichotomy that I was taught by Morgan Housel, who's a, a finance expert who's been on the podcast twice. Mm-hmm. And he, he identified wealth as being able to do what you want with who you want for as long as you want, when you want, with no one being able to tell you otherwise. Everything mm-hmm. over and above that is more money, more problems, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, um, right. I've just realized that I totally jumped over sloth. So we're going to learn about sloth. Why are, we, why are we lazy or apathetic? Is it just that we're trying to reduce our caloric expenditure? Is it just fitness enhancing again from our evolutionary heritage or what's going on?
1: Yeah. So um, sloth is, in moderation, is really useful. If you, if you look at people who are overly motivated, they let their levels of stress burn so high that they end up burning out. You know, um, they have... They don't, uh, some people won't stop until their bodies are literally incapable of continuing and they make themselves very, very ill. So a little bit of laziness each day helps to sort of clear the mind, getting you ready for the next bit. A little bit of laziness each week at the weekend, having a lazy Sunday, it's good for you. You you need a day of rest. You know, the human biology, body and brain needs to take rest. We can't perpet, although like try telling that to a teenager or someone in their 20s, like when you've got seemingly perpetual energy. But if you continue that kind of ener- hyper energetic behavior through your 30s and 40s and 50s, you simply wear yourself out earlier than you would do otherwise. It's really important to uh, not every time you go on holiday, pack as much in as humanly possible. In terms of stress control, there is nothing better for the, in terms of doing some deep cleaning and maintenance and repair in your brain than having completely dull as dishwater, boring holiday. Boring Why? is cleansing. Boring is cleansing because if you're bo- so if you, bo- boredom is the absence of stimulation and stimulation requires energy to process. Yep. Okay. So, so what I'm saying, I'm not saying every time you go on holiday, do nothing. Yeah. I'm saying beware every day's holiday you get packing as much as humanly possible into it. It's important to give yourself downtime in the short term day to day, in the long term year to year. And there's different levels of deep cleaning that can take place when you take a 10-minute break before you start another round of work uh, in any given day, and where one of your four weeks holiday a year, you just do nothing. It's, it's, it's cleansing. It's good. It's healthy. The extreme of sloth, when you never pull your weight, what, why should you get paid the same as everyone else if you do half the work everyone else does? Back in prehistory, why should you get a fair share of the spoils? You didn't come and hunt this food you didn't go out gathering, you, you do nothing around the house. Why should you? Obviously, these are the kind of accusations that are typically leveled at teenagers and a teenager's brain is halfway between immature child brain and a, and a fully mature adult brain. They're flick flacking between the two. They don't count. I'm talking about adults here. <laughs> Lazy teenagers aren't sinful. There's a reason they sleep for hours and hours and hours. Their brain development needs them to sleep 10 hours
0: 11 hours 12 uh, I hours know, hearing so, this all of the parents out there
1: yeah let them off let, teenagers was they they learn better if they're allowed in the schools that allow them to start school an hour later their um scholarship goes up not hugely but incrementally everyone does a little bit better but yeah it's, it's logistically tricky to have one set of school hours for the younger kids and another set for the others so there's a load of teachers out there probably going. Shut the enough,
0: fuck up! Please, I spend enough man.
1: time at school. You As, don't want to be there an hour later. Dude, did you, then,
0: have you read um, are too. Have you read uh, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker? Yes, I have. Love did, that. Did you see the study that he done in there about the reduction in car crashes they'd done by doing the same thing?
1: That 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 bit on microsleeps scared the living hell out of me. I hadn't thought of that. That when you're when you have a microsleep, it might be very very brief, like half a second but you are completely unconscious during that time.
0: At a junction. I hadn't,
1: I hadn't, yeah, right. When the light turns red.
0: I think I've just lost your video, bro.
1: Oh. You turned your video uh, off. Yeah, there you go. It, I don't know why it switched off. Oh, there
0: you go. Hi again. Um, so, oh. yes, okay. Sloth. Chilling out. We need to not have too much because then we're getting dragged along by everybody else, but we need to ensure that we have some. I know there's a lot of people listening that are type A's, go-getters, um, I'm one of them. I've had mini breakdowns millions and millions and millions of times where I just presume that I can upregulate my productivity and downregulate my sleep to fit in however much work it is that I need to do. Um, and really that, the only reason that that's not seen as the vice is that the only person you end up really hurting in that situation is yourself.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, but it is. whatever. But the,
1: also if you're supporting other people, like quite often, you know, the benefits of sloth should be focused upon by those whose sort of chief aim in life is to help others whether it's teachers teaching their kids or carers caring for people or whatever supporting other people if you don't give yourself the opportunity to recover with a little bit of downtime then you can't be as good a person when you're trying to support others whether it's in the context of a relationship a personal relationship or a working relationship you need to get those 8 hours as often as you possibly can in order to be the best version of yourself when you when you get back into the fray the following day.
0: Man, Aubrey Marcus on this podcast dropped the bomb of all bombs where he said, you do not serve others from your cup, you serve others from the saucer which overflows around your cup. Ha, <laughs> nice. Right. Absolute, like knee slapper. And uh, it's true, it's true. If you don't look after self-care, you can't be everything that you need to be to those around you. Same reason why when you're in a plane crash, when you have... The oxygen uh, uh, decompression. They tell yeah, you to your put, one on first before put you put your one gift. on before you try and help Absolutely. someone else. Because if you're suffocating, you're of no use yeah. to anyone else. Final thing, final round. Roth, is it the most immediately damaging sin that we've got?
1: Yeah, immediately damaging. Um, yeah, I suppose it is. Um we're all into, again, modicum of wrath. We're all entitled to feel angry. It's, it, it's a perfectly what, natural.
0: Why is a modicum of wrath? Why is a modicum good?
1: Well, as in if every time you get angry, frustrated, you feel that aggression, you, you beat yourself up for doing it. Like that's 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 not that's not right. Um, so, for example, if other people are taking advantage of you physically, mentally, you have a right to verbally push them back if they're being physically abusive, you know, it's, it's embedded in the law. The, an eye for an eye is all about your your comeback. If someone attacks you, your comeback needs to be equivalent. You know, you can't go, if, if someone prods you on the shoulder, you can't punch them in the face. If someone punches you in the face, you can't shoot them with a gun. That's all, all eye for an eye means, right? Um, it's about whatever whatever ill has been done towards you, you need to be measured in your response. You can't be disproportionate in your response. If you are, you're going to go to prison. If you're proportionate in your response, then you might not go to prison. You know what I mean? Like in the case of a violent conflict. Um, so we all have a right to get angry with other people when they're mucking us about. But we don't have a right or, 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 to, or to physically repel people who are physically aggravating us within reason. We have a right to do that. It's just when aggression is given free reign, obviously, like the drunk guy coming and harassing me at Speaker's Corner, like he was aggressively abusing me, and I had a right to verbally abuse him back. I wasn't proud of it, because I was trying not to, but I had a right to do that. Because, you you know, verbal, it's basic, aggression can be like a, a verbal, a physical discouragement from further aggravation. But, but when it's the, the problem is, again, just going back to that DACC area, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, I love the study that showed this brain area kicking in in the context of Roth because uh, they got people wired up with electrodes so that they could deliver electric shocks to each other inside the scanner. <laughs> and they've got a dial and they can crank up the voltage of how much pain they're delivering through that electric shock And they found that in a tit for tat exchange where one person zaps and goes, ow, that hurt. And then you zap them back. It's like, ow, that was much harder than the one I gave you. You know, and you go, it escalates, as it always does in these tit for tat retaliations, Up and up and up and up and up. They found that the DACC brain area kicks in in a manner that was positively correlated to how much they cranked up that voltage. So the, the, the feeling of inner turmoil, of pain, drove the amount of revenge they wanted to get. And it's, it's it's when you kind of get into the realms of people fantasizing about the retribution that they're going to take, the revenge they're going to exact to punish someone for a perceived wrongdoing. That's when it starts getting dark. That's when people start getting murdered. That's when people start, you know, maybe an individual, maybe loads of them. And it doesn't even have to be causing another person's death. It could just be causing horrible traumatic injury to someone else on the basis sometimes of just you know wounded pride
0: all of us have been in that situation man like in my least gracious moments you know when you think about what you would have said or could have said or would have oh right well if he if they say man like and the cathartic pleasure that you take from imagining the thing like dude there's there's Facebook debates from a decade ago that I still rue not writing the response that I think I should have said. Well,
1: good, but never never type angry. At least you honored that particular guidance.
0: Maybe I think I might have just not had had enough caffeine in me so I couldn't reach the level of like vitriol that I, I was trying to get at. I, I wonder whether that was <laughs> I was restricted by my blood caffeine content rather than by virtue. Uh, I, I couldn't believe, this is a stat that you dropped, 90% of all murders are committed by men. Does this yep. show that most aggression is biologically rooted rather than socialised?
1: Um, It's impossible to know for sure because...
0: Boys are socialised different to girls.
1: There you go. Um, yeah. But, like... You know, and there are conditions where females have, you know, very, very, very high levels of testosterone um, for, for, for other reasons. Like mm-hmm. w- women have testosterone too, right? Mm-hmm. It's just that men produce this extra payload in their gonads. So, so, some women can biologically produce an equivalent of a male level of testosterone, and they are as aggressive as, as men are.
0: Um, so testosterone's typically. the aggression drug then?
1: Yeah, so testosterone drives the bodily changes of of male sexual characteristics but it's also involved certainly in aggression it's just it's a bit tricky because if you like w- one study they did was looking at people who were taking testosterone as an anabolic steroid and you know were they more aggressive than others and it, it it's it's just never a clear-cut answer it would be really nice to go yeah testosterone's to blame but testosterone maybe promotes aggression but then there are other brain areas that can rein it in to more reasonable levels. Um, And so it's always an interplay between the drive building up, becoming greater and greater, and then other brain areas that are putting the brakes on those fundamental drives. And is it because there's too much drive or is it because there's too much lack of the ability to apply the brakes? Mm. And it's just not as clear cut as, as you'd like. One study will say, yeah, it's all about the testosterone, that makes men so aggressive. And then other studies are going, nah, it's going to have to do the testosterone. It's something else entirely. So it's just hard to give a clear-cut explanation.
0: That's an interesting one, man. Right, my final question to you, which I haven't prepped you for, so sorry about this, is, is there something missing from the seven deadly sins? And if there is, what do you think would rank at number eight? Or perhaps what could be a contender? Wow. To add in there, did you consider this?
1: No, no, I was I, because I was happy to learn from the ancient wisdom. I didn't really.
0: think was just of so our delighted. I yeah. the
1: science had actually tallied with, uh, with, with, with the with with the religious kind of beliefs that um, I really didn't. Expect, I was hoping for it, but I wasn't banking on it. That I, I didn't really, I didn't really go beyond. I was thinking, what can people do with this? Um, if there was. Who am I to go beyond the greatest thinkers of of you know mankind's history? Because it's not just Christianity that came up with these seven things. So many other religions um, have pointed the finger at pride, excessive pride, excessive aggression, excessive envy. It's just these are universally recognised as antisocial forces. So is there an eighth antisocial force that isn't captured by them?
0: I'm just asking you to try and undo... 3,000 years of work and then perhaps build on it in the space of 15 seconds oh, I, I, live I like, on a, on I like a podcast. A no, I like a challenge. No, no small feat. Um, the
1: problem is, I reckon anything I say, you'd be able to argue that it's a combination of those seven almost axiomatic, slightly okay. problematic drives. Because I was thinking along the lines of, now we've got this new player, technology, you know, this overconsumption of technology is in play. And
0: like, perhaps- a gl- like a gluttony of information almost.
1: Yeah. And also it, there's so much. So, so for example, there, there's a few things on that topic that are pertinent here. Like if you know that the information you've just looked up is up there on the internet and you can go back and look at it anytime, you won't remember what, what you read a day later. Like people's memories are rubbish. We don't retain information anymore. Because of the context where we know we can just look it up. Like, th- think how many conversations are ruined by everyone. Like, you th- oh, I wonder if that. It used to be that you can spend half an hour discussing the, the the likelihood of whether it's this or that, or what is the explanation for that. You know, why do they call it a pot to piss in? You could spend ages trying to work it out. Now you just go online and go, oh, it's because people used to sell their weed if they were really poor, and if you didn't have a pot, you couldn't even sell your urine. You know, like you just you can just look it up now. But then quite often, people look it up, and then a month later, the same thing comes up. Oh, yeah, I knew the answer to that, and they can't remember what, which I don't think is good for the individual or for the masses. It's things like if you, people that are always looking at their phone, they're not so good at empathy. Like any task that involves empathy, if you're not looking at someone's face and body language, you're not really uh, absorbing the cues that are emanating from them that give you the subtext of how they're really feeling about what's being discussed if everyone's head down looking at their screen, they are by definition not looking at other people's faces. And you need to look at people in order to take in that body language to run it through the empathy circuits. Um, so there's a bit, you know, this is all early evidence, but I feel like the seventh, the eighth deadly sin would be along the lines of technology delivers clear benefits, you know, labor saving, enlightening, you know, this technology, your listeners, you are using technology to communicate with me across the vast, you're up in Newcastle, right, across the length of a country, opposite ends of a country, and, um, and then you're packaging it, and then you're digitally, you know, giving it to people all over the world. Without technology, our, our knowledge would be vastly, vastly limited, but to like a, an, an ill disciplined consumption of technology, never asking yourself, how much is too much? Of like, is social media, on average, making me happier after I've used it, or sadder? Am I starting to feel less motivated? Am I am I starting to feel deflated every time I look at it because it's such a source of envy, malicious, negative envy? Because everyone's falsely showing their their their, their, their show reel of the best things in their life and completely ignoring the negatives, creating this false perception of how great everyone else's lives are compared to our own. So, so yeah. The excessive use of technology to the detriment of, your, of the interests of your well-being.
0: That's the new gateway.
1: That would be my eighth deadly sin of the modern age.
0: I think that's a really good shout, man. I, whatever the, I'm trying to think of the word that is the opposite of boredom or a fear of boredom. A fear of being alone without the input of other minds or information.
1: I mean, the thing—it's bad. I—I I, I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave your listeners with the idea that boredom <laughs> is bad. Boredom is great, right? oh, I, dude? Because because into the boredom, into continuous boredom, the human brain hates it. And into that vacuum, crazy ideas, but like the crazy, positively like eccentric, unusual things. The notions about what might be fun to do to 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 ease that boredom. Like without boredom, a lot of the greatest human strokes of insight would never have come because you need to quieten a mind sufficiently to hear those ideas bubbling up from your subconscious brain processes. If you're constantly consuming stuff, you're never you're never quietening your brain enough to to hear what's what's gently bubbling up to the surface of your consciousness because there's music and conversation and you know, like internet and TV and films and consumption, Netflix, tick five, four, three, two, one, next episode, next episode, next episode. Just give in, give in to the torrent. No, switch it off for a whole day, bore yourself to death and then see what emerges. See what weird things you decide to go and do. Not all of which will be great, but a few of them will change your life. So sorry, the antithesis to boredom I would say is, being incredibly stimulated by the outside world.
0: And a desire for that is perhaps somewhere in amongst this new eighth sin that we've got. Look, Jack, man, we
1: Thanks, man. You you helped me have an original thought, maybe.
0: We did we did a thing. Me and you did a thing, and if you do a sequel and it's the, the eighth sin, um I'm, I'm a do you know like how Robert Green did that, like the fiftieth law and and fifty cent came in? And it was just like purely all Robert Green, and then Fifty Cent's just like, "Yo, what's up in the club?" And then you think <laughs> that's me. I'm the I'm the guy that just gets his name on the book because because I'm a famous rapper. But uh, look, dude, uh, tell us, tell the listeners, YouTube channel, Twitter, where where do they go? Link to buy the Science of Sin. I highly recommend that you go and get it. It's really cool. There's so much stuff that we didn't go into, uh, and it will be available in the show notes below via Amazon and all other booksellers but what else where Thanks. where else should yeah. people so,
1: go uh on twitter at dr jack lewis at dr jack lewis uh well oh my website um www.drjack.co.uk drjack.co.uk uk. i write a, a, a blog every month i've been doing that for over a decade so there's a lot of stuff there um what else? Oh, yeah, my, my silly little YouTube channel, which I love doing, even though I'm uh, going to go what, check
0: it out, man. I'm going to go and watch It's going to be, I think.
1: Brain Man VR. And if you're in, I think that virtual reality has, even though it's been around for 40 years, it hasn't even scratched the surface of its potential. Um, I think virtual reality is so good that I spend half the time in my, in my YouTube channel saying, don't overdo it. This has got such huge potential to be addictive but I don't want you to lose interest in the real world because when I first started doing it, right, some people, when they do VR, they don't use a good headset and they write off VR saying it's not as you know, it's hyped up, it's rubbish.
0: I've only used an Oculus Go. Right, rubbish.
1: Yeah. When you use a high-end one, the experiences that can be offered are so different.
0: What's the, what's the spec of whatever you're rolling with at the moment?
1: I, I've, I, I got Before they even launched it, I bought myself an HTC Vive um so so it's 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 almost obsolete now i've had it for four years but it's it's one of these ones where you're tethered to a powerful graphics pc you know you need that graphics power to update what your eyes are seeing enough so that when you look around it shows your eyes exactly what you would see if you were in that virtual world but the thing is it's like it transcends games and experiences and documentary and um like it's and it's only limited by human imagination. Like every day, I think when, when COVID happened, I turned Beat Saber, where you're sort of slashing, you're using lightsabers to hit <laughs> boxes that fly at you through the air. I, I I made my own version of it called COVID Slasher. And it was like <laughs> in the week that they saw what COVID looked like, they released an image of what COVID looked like. I modeled it and had it so that you're cutting in half all these COVID viruses that are coming towards you from all directions and it was sort of it was so cathartic because there was nothing else to do you felt a bit helpless like what can you do there's nothing you can do you just have to wait for scientists to do their wonderful work over the course of years and make the bloody vaccine um, and in the meantime you might as well just get your frustration out <laughs> and it was Swash great
0: I, some covid
1: i woke up in the morning with a crazy idea because i was bored and by the morning of the next day i'd made it
0: it's a virtual the, world that you can wonder- now inhabit.
1: Yeah, and, it, and and that's just copying other people's games. Like There's loads of things that, that you can do in VR which are basically taking a concept that's been done over and over again in other world, in other media, flat screen computer gaming or cinema or whatever, and then just redoing it in a 3D environment. It's rubbish. There's loads of stuff that you can do that's completely unique to VR that you can only do in VR. And so that's why I'm sort of, Well, ultimately, what I'm going to do is build VR things, which are really fun games to play, but secretly, I mean, your listeners will know, you know, and I know, but I'm not going to advertise it. In the background, it's going to be improving your cognitive capabilities because there's so many games out there that people pour loads of time into that has no potential to improve their brain power. And, And it's just a matter of designing the game right to actually improve people's attention, working memory decision-making, multitasking capabilities, blah, blah, blah. I'm just going to have it all built in. And then the dream is measure people's capacities covertly as they start playing the game, measure them again a year, a month later, a year later, hopefully they'll keep playing, keep playing, and then just show them retrospectively your working memory is improved by four or five points. Your attention span has increased from 30 seconds to, you know, like, and just show them, it's a good thing you played this game because now your brain's better.
0: that's the dream (laughs) that that is so cool i mean the oculus go that i got was off an ex-misses and then we split up and i sold it so there's no danger of me going back to one that's that's super lame but i that sounds that sounds awesome i don't know whether you know paul stamets the guy that does a lot of stuff into like my uh mycology is like a big um mushroom supplementation also psychedelics but not just that like lion's main and all manner of mad shit and he did a similar thing with a dosing a micro dosing protocol and you were to do take an app and do like finger tapping the speed of your finger tapping and other right. other other like micro movements and other bits and pieces and they tracked it through this quantified self app um so that's kind of like a, a more uh upfront version and probably a lot less fun like just Tapping away. although micro dosing micro and then going into vr i mean that's I, no one needs to do that there's enough there's enough well, going but on so,
1: so it's funny you should say that because uh, like i'm super excited i finally got it set up that i listened to a podcast that talks a lot about latest developments in vr and this bloke in some cabin in the middle of nowhere in canada spent the last six years creating what he calls a technodelic it's um a vr experience that can simulate a psychedelic experience right. with the idea that Psychedelic experiences sometimes can go badly, but quite often can give people uh, new, fresh perspectives on things in their life. That that they maintain that healthier perspective long after the drug has left their system. You know, and he wants to create the same thing using using light and sound, and to try and simulate those trippy experiences in order to hopefully give people the positive impacts on their well-being, but without the danger. Of that. The oh, that's so yeah, cool. Yeah. So, so I'm literally going to get stuck into that as soon as I get off here and um, I'll report back.
0: I, I look forward to it. Look, Jack, man, this is one of the longest episodes I have done in a while, but I've absolutely loved it. And there's still so much that i could go into so it's been
1: a pleasure well having met you i'm now going to listen to your podcasts from beginning to end
0: oh dude well if you notice the fact that the camera angle doesn't change but that we swap t-shirts between episode life hacks 101 and life hacks 102 <laughs> then you'll know exactly now and so so does everyone else look listen like share and subscribe you already know what to do all the links to everything that we've gone through jack's cool youtube channel where he does stuff on vr and the book the fantastic Signs of sin will be linked below But for now, Jack, man, thank you so much.
1: Pleasure to meet you, bro.